It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Sam Hargraves with you across the country. Thanks to Host Plus. That's a plus. I hope your morning's going as well as it possibly can be. However, you're putting it in wherever you're putting it in. It's great to have you on board as the sports world. Sadly, in mourning today, the death of an icon, Pelé, the Brazilian maestro, known simply as the greatest, the only player to win three World Cups. Sadly, lost his battle with cancer early this morning, Australian time. We will uh, drill down into that. Uh, Craig Foster will join us to remember his life and times. We are here together today on day five of the Boxing Day test because South Africa just weren't good enough to be here on day five of the Boxing Day test and we're barely good enough to get to day four, let alone a day five. So I really shouldn't complain because I was on call yesterday and for the poor person, uh, 615 ending number, I've got bad news and worse news for you. Yes, I am doing nine to 12 and if you're upset about that, I'm going to take the jam right out of your donut because I'm doing nine to one. So I'm very sorry uh, to you, sir. Um, but since Boxing Day was done and dusted yesterday, Australia winning by an innings and 182 runs, I've been asking myself this question. I'm going to ask it to you as well, one three hundred seven three six seven three six, 736 736 or 0433981116. You can ring in on the first number, text in on the second. Are you glass half full about this or are you glass half empty about this? Australia have gone 4-0 so far this test summer versus the West Indies and South Africa, 3-0 v England in the one days before that. After a disappointing World Cup, they've dominated. We should be ecstatic about that, shouldn't we? Right? Hmm. We didn't expect much from the West Indies. We were pleasantly surprised by the fight that they showed to at least make a game of it in the first test in Perth before being dominated in the second in Adelaide. But we were okay with that because we believed that South Africa was going to give us the contest we craved and, frankly, that cricket here needed. They'd won their last three test series here. They were number two in the world. They were third in the test championship standings. And they had a bowling attack heralded as the rival, if not the better, of our very own. And... It was over on day one of the first test at the Gabba. South Africa bowled out for 99, a batting lineup so brutal. The West Indian team, whose second best bat is already a bloke who's only played two tests, actually outscored them in a test-by-test comparison over two tests by 263 runs. A batting lineup so brittle, its greatest accomplishment in this series was passing 200 for the first time in eight tests. 204 on a deck that their opponents made 575 on against their bowling lineup. Their captain said was the best in the world. 204 with a man that took five wickets in the first innings, not bowling. Mitchell Stark bleeding from a busted finger and Nathan Lyon with a shoulder scare. This series promised so much and delivered in terms of a contest so, so little. And so too did South Africa. They barely raised their fist in this fight, let alone through a punch. Now, so many analogies. I'm a sucker for an analogy ran through my head. The first of which is I started broad was South Africa have been like New Year's Eve, incredibly overhyped and thoroughly underwhelming. Happy New Year to everyone for tomorrow night. All the stats, all the figures, all the numbers I mentioned before had us thinking that despite not fully trusting some aspects of South Africans' lineup, namely the batting, but that they were the real deal. And in the end, those numbers proved to be a false economy. South Africa are like Bitcoin. They went bang briefly, but in the end, that bowling attack, just like Bitcoin, isn't backed up by anything of substance. And the first test of it, it came crashing down. But for some reason, my mind went very niche on my analogy to the 1998 poker movie Rounders and the words of Teddy KGB. I feel so unsatisfied. 
I feel so unsatisfied. And this series is a lot like the finale of Rounders in Australia. South Africa had been Teddy KGB, the John Malkovich character, to Australia's Mike McDermott, played by Matt Damon. Teddy KGB, a terrifying figure who had dominated them, who had been the antagonist of them going completely bust, losing it all, come crumbling down, the central figure in the worst moment of their lives. And this series did truly feel like the moment of redemption for Australia, just as the finale was to Mike McDermott. And South Africa would have felt a lot like Teddy KGB after the first test, just like in the movie, the first game was over before it began and never reached any great heights. They said to themselves that they were not satisfied with that performance and threatened to respond in the second. But what they didn't realise is that like Mike in Rounders, Australia had figured out South Africa. And once you take away the cookies, they never stood a chance and everything fell apart. Well, are you feeling satisfied now, Teddy? Because I can go on busting you up all night. Yet, yet, he beat me straight up. Pay him, pay that man his money. Australia will go on busting up South Africa all night. So, pay that man his money, pay that team their money, give that team their dues because they deserve all the flowers, as Tim Watson would say. And with one test to get through this summer and a chance to sweep both series. Australia are looking great. But just like Mike McDermott in Rounders, who finishes the movie driving to Vegas to take on the very best in the world in their own house, this Australian team is about to do the same thing and could be on the verge of history and cricket immortality if they can win in India for the first time since 2004 in England, for the first time since 2001 in June. And this team looks to have every base covered to do so. It looks to have the game to win. But is that in itself a false economy, given who we've actually been playing? So are we satisfied? Is your glass half full? Australia dominating. Dave Warner, career-defining, double-tonne, defying critics' conditions in his own body, inspiring the heroics of Cam Green and Mitch Stark to follow suit with similar deeds with busted digits. Marnus and Steve Smith putting up Bradman-esque numbers. Cam Green only second to Ian Botham now in terms of runs made and wickets taken at the same career stage. Scott Boland's the most popular cricketer. In Australia, with the most insane bowling average we've seen, Alex Carey comes into his own with his first century in a, in a test that was a tribute to Warney, but he did what no keeper had done since the man who passed away on the same day as Warney, Rod Marsh, by scoring an MCG ton. Travis Head playing white ball cricket against the red ball. Pat Cummins, as captain, has only lost one test and as captain has taken 46 wickets at 20.21, an economy of 22 6-2. No test captain has done that before. Makes a mockery of the long-held belief that bowlers can't be captains. Our bowling stocks are deep. Our batting, disciplined, destructive when it needs to be, and diverse. And as a team, this team does all the little things all the time. Their opponents couldn't even get the running between wickets right, the tactics right, the fielding right, anything right. So are your glass half empty or half full? If you're half empty, then no test, in fact, was a test for Australia this summer. No test went the distance or ever really in doubt. And just like New Zealand in 2019-2020, we got ourselves all worked up for what might only be left. We got ourselves all worked up to only be left unsatisfied, just like Teddy KGB, with what was. This is how it played out yesterday. Green over the wickets to him. Bowling! Green's got his first fiver in his blossoming test career. He's the $6 million man bowling like that on Boxing Day. And the tourists are all out for 189. Warner on strike. Pulls down toward the boundary and he gets it there all the way to the rope. Dave Warner celebrates. He's up there with Australia's all-time greats. Dave Warner on 196. 
And Gidi in bowls to him. And Warner, it leapt at him. He got it away through the corner and down for four. Down to his knees. This is the innings of a champion. A Bullinagate double century. He bowls to Carey, who cuts away for four. Bat raised immediately as it beat cover. <laughs> it's a maiden test time for Alex Carey as he comes back for a third. He's a fully fledged Aussie keeper now. <laughs> He's called him in. <laughs> Smith to Ngidi. Four ball, got him. Bowled him. The deed finished by Steve Smith. Australia inflicted MCG thrashing on South Africa. And for the first time in 17 years on these shores, they win a series against the South Africans. They win by an innings of 182 runs in the Boxing Day tests. Well, that man, the captain of the SEN Test commentary team, Jared Waitley, joins me. Jared, Merry Christmas to you and yours and a Happy New Year for tomorrow night. Can I ask you first and foremost, are you glass half full or half empty with what you've seen this summer? Are you satisfied? Oh, yes, Sam. As I, this Australian cricket team could not have done more. They are playing excellent crickets, and now every one of them is in form. So for the we knew that this was the entree to the real challenges of 2023, which would come offshore in India and England. But it's merely been perfect so far, and that the return to form of Dave Warner is just about the last piece of that. But for, for the litany of what you step through, I think this is a brilliant Australian cricket team. It, it has the chance to become a great team over the, the year that is ahead with the mm. World Test Championship, which they are absolutely dominating. They are thoroughly enjoyable to watch in the way that they play their cricket. I think they're incredibly likeable. I think this is a team that the nation should be uh, fully embracing. Um, and if we're not, then I think that probably owes to, to some of the issues of the past rather than the present. Going to talk to you about all that, and I couldn't agree with more with uh, couldn't agree with you more on your summation of, of where they're at. Uh, this series has had moments to remember, not matches. Uh, we've still got Sydney to come, so who knows what that might give us. What was the moment for you so far from the four tests that we've seen? Oh, I think it is the Warner double century in his one yeah. hundredth test match. Is it has the the confluence that um, it was a listener in Sydney put together. That it, it has the uh, it has the Steve War fighting for his career on that one perfect day at the SCG, and it has the um, the Dean Jones mm. fighting against his own body and the, and the conditions um, in India. So I think it was instantly iconic, um, and it came at a time where a lot of us were thinking that the the end was about to swallow him up, and that that sort of innings might have been beyond him. Uh, and as as true champions over a long period of time do, he he restored who he had been. So I think there'd been a lot of tinkering happening in his game, searching for it. Uh, and he went back to the true essence of what Warner is, and, and that is the, the bullet gate player that he's always been. And this is against a proper attack. So there was, I know we are disappointed with the level of competition that the West Indies and South Africa have presented but this is a world-class bowling attack, mm. probably second only uh, to Australia in uh, in what it had achieved across the year. Uh, so this was, and it was done. Um, it wasn't done on a road. It was done in in really trying conditions. So yeah, there's been lots of great achievements. It's it's quite amazing actually. The the list of milestones across yeah. the four tests that Australian players have produced. But but I do think that is the 
that's a moment that will last in, in MCG law and I think it's clearly the image of the summer. Should we be alarmed by this is what the, the team ranked number two coming here has dished up? You, you chat with Todd Greenberg, I think it was yesterday, or if not the day before, was a fascinating one and cricket becoming very quickly, if not already, the haves and the have-nots. Todd Greenberg spoke about that with you, the head of the ACA. Do, do the ICC, Jared, need to take a bit of a direct hand in setting up something in terms of equalisation? We see it in the AFL. Um, does cricket have that issue now, needing to address equalisation? Uh, that, that is such a complex uh, <laughs> issue to deal with. So it, cricket would be better if there were more test nations that were uh, competitive, but I do think a lot rests with each um, with each country's governing body and whether they truly prioritise Test cricket. Mm. So uh, there, there's the I hear the sentiment that Australia and England and India need to do more for the other countries. I, I can't quite fathom what that would be, but there are better minds in mind to explore that. The ICC, it's not really their their place. Is at times they look like just a toothless scheduling body in the way that they govern the sport. It really is for each individual country to figure out. But you have to, the backdrop to that is South Africa came here as with the, with the second best percentage on the world test championship list. So they hadn't been destitute across this year. They'd played quite a lot of test cricket. They had success against India. They'd had success against England. And they've been absolutely decimated here. Now, how they had that success is really interesting when you study their batting order. I don't know how they managed to do it, but they managed to do it with slightly different personnel. Um, but maybe it just maybe it does emphasise that the tour here. We we say that the tour to India is is the most fearsome that Australia faces. Well, I think the tour to Australia is the most fearsome that that most other nations take, and yeah. it is a graveyard for visiting captains. And we're watching that with Dean Elgar and his in his language, in his batting, in his tactics. Everything is, is wrong in that team at the moment. But this wasn't... I know South Africa are going to go through a really interesting phase now. They've, they've prioritised their own T20 competition because that's where the money is. The IPL owners have bought into that. Uh, their, their test schedule is lesser than it's ever been over the next, um, over the next five years. Mm. Um, a lot of that is at their own hand and their own choice. But this is not a destitute cricket nation that arrived here to get flogged. Is This is a, a team that was sitting second that has been decimated by Australia. Sydney Test, Jared, do you have the licence to experiment now or is it dangerous to do so if you don't set it up properly? We've seen the experimentation period not that long ago. We rolled that many players through the side that I often am surprised when I'm doing big bash games to go, oh, he's played two tests for Australia, Curtis Patterson yeah. or Hilton Cartwright. Or do you just stick with the next cab off the rank uh, process that has served them so well in recent years? You set the team up for the first test in India. I yep. think that's the that's the logic and that's the luxury that Australia has earned. So if they play a second spinner, they should play the second spinner who's going to play in the first test in India. Uh, and I think Andrew McDonald hinted at that with us. He said, we won't necessarily play the next best spinner. We'll play the spinner that best suits the lineup. So if they are going to go with Lyon and Agar in the first test in India, that, that's what they should go with in Sydney. Um Lance Morris is, is a great investment in the future. He was the cover for Mitch Stark. I, he's, he's clearly playing on what Andrew McDonald mm. said. I suspect they switch Hazelwood and Boland to make sure that Hazelwood gets a test match. Um, Boland's had three, so he's up and ready to go. They need Hazelwood to have a test before they head offshore. No one's quite sure what his place in the Indian 
tests might be, but he needs to be ready to go. So I absolutely expect that he bowls. They're going to bring... So I've just been reading Pete Lawler and Ben Horn and they are spot on with these things. So there's the suggestion that they're going to bring Matt Renshaw into the squad, which I think is a pretty clear hint that he's going to India. Mm. He'll, be the, he'll be the reserve opener um, if something goes awry with either Warner or Kawaja, given that he's had the experience there. So it would make perfect sense if he came into the squad and if they go with the extra batter instead of the second spinner, it will be him. And if they choose to go with the extra seamer who can bat, it'll be Nisa who already showed us his wares in Adelaide. So in that conversation is just how how well stocked Australia is, is they not only have their their first choice lineup, but they have their first reserve in virtually every category. So I think this team uh, it's probably the conversation for after Sydney, but I think they will leave these shores for this Indian series as well equipped as any in the past 20 years to take on that challenge. And immortality awaiting, Jared, as mentioned in the opener, 2001, uh, the last time we've been able to beat England in England, 2004, the last time we've been able to beat India in India. Do, do we lack for anything? Do, is this the best, you know, and most balanced and, 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 and most potent, whatever words you want to use, do we have it all to do what we need to do? Well, I think it's really well stopped. Um, probably the second spinner is not going to be as good as Stephen O'Keefe and not going to be as good as Stuart McGill if you if you step back through recent mm. history. Um, the bowling stocks are stacked. The batters are in good form. I think there's still the question over the middle order position against spin. Um, but Travis said he's absolutely dominating at five and he's such a thoroughly modern cricketer that he's going to get the first look at it. He doesn't have a great record in those conditions. So that there's a couple of riders to it. But, yeah, this team's greatness goes on the line in 2023. If they were to pick off all three of a victory in India, the World Test Championship, and a victory in England, um, that's all-time status. That's a very high bar, so great to aspire to. I wouldn't expect them to um, to do all three, but a combination of two of them would be um, would be just outstanding for Pat Cummins in the early years of his, of his captaincy. So, yeah, they... For a, for a couple of the players who are getting to the end, this is the legacy achievements that stretch out before them. Um, I don't think India is is quite as good as probably the teams that um, that have beaten Australia in recent times mm. over there. Just it just doesn't quite feel that way. There's been a couple of blemishes in in their recent Test cricket, uh, and who knows with England? I mean, mm. if Australia does happen to win in in India or even draw that series. Um, I don't think we will have had a build-up to an Ashes like it since 2005, and it might even be more than that with the way England's playing its Test cricket. So, yeah, 2023 is a defining year for this generation of Australian cricketer, and that, that they are they are in great shape to go mm. and take it on, which is not to say that they will achieve all that they, they aspire to. And what it might do for the relationship with the general public again, um, if it hasn't already, um, I think will be incredibly important as well with those achievements. Last one, Jared, because you've started a campaign and I'm, I'm standing here with pen in hand ready to sign your petition to have the Boxing Day test start at midday rather than at 10am. How is it going? You've been speaking to all the power brokers in the game. Are you getting traction? I feel like I've got a little bit of traction, Sam. <laughs> Uh, Stuart Fox personally likes the idea, so they, he was careful to say the MCC stages the game but doesn't uh, uh, set the circumstances of the game. He'd spoken to Nick Hockley about it before we, we talked on air about it. Um, 
I think if you if you think about it from a Melbourne perspective and the rhythms of life at this time of year and what it might mean. So I, I absolutely, I, I'm in awe of the 50,000 who make it for the first ball every year. And mm. we got to 64,000 this year on Boxing Day. Uh, in my theory, that, that can become 75,000 or 80,000. Because I think once you, once you go, look, we're not going to get there for the first ball because it's just impossible on a home front. You don't go, I don't think. But if you put it at midday and go, okay, so we only have to be on a train at quarter to 11 and we'll be inside the ground for the first ball and what it might do to the other end of the day when we all roll out between 7 and 7.30 and, uh, and the city and the, the Richmond area, I think it just perfectly matches the festive season. It would further delineate the Boxing Day test. The light is just not an issue, so it doesn't affect the cricket one bit. This is really about the the social aspect and the, and the rhythms. We used to start at 11 and then move to 10.30 for television. So 11 was far more appropriate, I think, but mm. I would go the other way and slide to 12. And maybe maybe next year, rather than just go, we're doing this forever more, um, it's Pakistan next year. There's the, the, the desire to connect with that Pakistan community, which was so brilliant on those yes. two nights at the MCG during the World Cup. And that World Cup night, I've never really seen anything like it. The turn-up of, of that group of our community, if you can engage with them for Boxing Day so that they all feel a stake in it, slide it back to midday, and then as Stuart Fox says, let's take aim at the 91,000 and see if we can have a test away from the ashes that's capable of drawing that crowd. Um, I reckon that's one of the, that's one of the ways to do it. Well, the people in the region and to Victoria are with it as well. The response we got when I asked it, all the country people are like, absolutely, because it helps with their commutes. So, Jared, I'm on board. I think many people are. Good luck with that. Good luck with the Sydney test as well. You guys are killing it, as always, and thanks for your time this morning. Terrific, Sam. Good man. Uh, Jerry Whiteley, the captain of the SEN Test commentary team for Bundaberg Ginger Beer, the great Australian brute. No, no, I feel, I feel comfortable in that. And, uh, of course, it's nice when you... You know the people recognize what you're doing. The people like you. It's very nice, but uh, it's a very big responsibility because uh, a lot of kids all over the world they follow you. They, they want to. You need to be an example for them, and uh, then the life is that you know little. You have to maintain example, a certain image because everybody can make a normal mistake. You know because we are a normal person. But when you are recognized like that, you cannot make some mistakes. <laughs> then it becomes difficult. Well, the sporting world uh, is in mourning today after the death of an icon, uh, Pelé, the Brazilian maestro, known as the greatest uh, in the world game, the only footballer to win three World Cups. Uh, lost his battle with cancer early this morning. Uh, Australian time, Craig Foster from Stan Sports uh, and former Australian football champion has been good enough to join us to discuss the, the life and times of a man who's always brought up in the conversation as who are the greatest athletes of all time with Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods. Pele's name sits at the top uh, of the tree, not just in football, but um, in sport internationally and over time. And Craig Foster has been good enough to jump on. Craig, hello to you. Yeah, good morning, guys. Yeah, it's a sad day for not just the football community, but uh, you know we're, the world has lost one of its most loved uh, and best-known humans in history. So you, um, I think Pelé would have finished up in your very early years uh, mm. of life, but what has he represented to you in your love of football and your career in it? 
Yeah, so he finished in 77, so I was only like eight years old. So, mm. you know, so the era that I came into was the Diego, Diego Maradona era, and, of course, we tend to have affection and understand those much better that we saw live and were able to live through their career experiences. For Pelé, though, anyone who saw him, including in 72 when he came to Sydney, uh, they... Uh, clearly believe that he was the greatest ever. He transcended football, though. You know, of course, the whole world of football, you know, hundreds of millions of people around the world uh, this morning are deeply saddened. But actually, he was one of the most loved and one of the best-known humans in our history. And in the 20th century, what was interesting in your opening there was that you mentioned four black athletes um, who kind of came one after the other. Pelé started first in 58. In the 60s then was Muhammad Ali. Then he had Michael Jordan and then Tiger Woods. And that pretty much started, I guess, in the 36 Olympics with Jesse Owens. But then the real, uh, the one who, who, who became globally famous mm. uh, was Pelé. And he was the first that came only 13 years after the Second World War. So after this Nazi ideology had been defeated, uh, you know, this was a moment when a black athlete, a poor black athlete from Brazil, became the most loved figure on earth. And, of course, eventually the athlete known as the athlete of the 20th century. It's quite an incredible story. And the, and the timing was very significant because you had this black Brazilian uh, playing the world's game, dominating, winning three titles, uh, scoring you know, virtually a goal a game, 1,281 goals and becoming loved and what you heard from him there was he was constantly taught he was very concerned about the way he conducted himself um he he was very close to governments and presidents and prime ministers all around the world and he was constantly talking about the rights of children and about love and peace so whilst he wasn't so much an activist um he was always promoting um, universal values and messages of love, which is one of the reasons why he was so loved himself. What's his legacy in your mind? I'm speaking to Craig Foster mm. from Stan Sport. Yeah, um, I think that's it. It's it's more that you know, in the middle part of last century, when the world war, you know, had been at war, um, and you know, it was searching for. Um, you know, to take a, a step beyond this, you know, this hateful racist ideology, you had this diminutive, it was only 170 centimetres tall, this mm. small, relatively small, incredibly skilled and beautiful, beautifully hearted human, Pelé, who travelled the world and he became an evangelist, not just for football, but through football, he became an evangelist for love and peace. That's quite an incredible a legacy and it's it extends far beyond the game of football of course in the football you know everyone loves him yeah. uh, you know and, and and until his you know dying moment he was still very much at the center you saw during the Qatar recent world cup that you know pele uh, through his social media accounts would only have to put out a statement you know and it literally goes around the world you know tens of hundreds of millions of times you know he was so revered but he was far far more than that he he came to embody um, if you like, Brazilianness as well, the, the opening, loving, welcoming nature of Brazilian people. He actually was Brazil to, you know, billions of people around the world. Yeah. As soon as we, you know, anyone thinks about Brazil, you, you would all, you know, immediately think about Pelé. So he was, it was an extraordinary human, one of the most loved ever, and it's a big loss. Uh, Foz, as a player, what was it that made him so mm. special? What could he do that no one ever could or has ever been able to do since? 
He, well, he's just an extraordinary goal scorer, but that's because he had all of the gifts. He was incredibly quick. Um, he had a leap that was quite amazing. So you'd often see him up above goalkeepers and so on. So he was he was um, quite unique in that way. Um, he was both footed, so his right and left foot. He had no preference of either. And what that meant is that he could just score from anywhere at any time. You know, volleys, it didn't matter. He, he technically was perfect. And during the recent World Cup, uh, some videos went around the world, which were very nice, because people started saying, look, Leo Messi, Messi is doing an amazing job here. And, and the contemporary football fans who've lived his experience will naturally see him as the greatest ever, because, you know, it's, you can't compare mm. um, when you haven't lived it. But what they would do is they were sharing some of the moments that Messi was creating, the dribbles, the goals, these things, and saying everything that's done today was done already by the king, mm. uh, you know, back in the late 50s, 60s, and early 70s. Uh, and what he did, though, he also uh, kind of transcended geographical boundaries. Pele was for everyone. Um, and he, I think, was the first. Perhaps Muhammad Ali was a little in the same, same breath, but I think Pele probably stood alone, in that he would travel the world, and every single person virtually knew who Pele was. And famously, of course, he went to Nigeria. I think it was called the Biafra War in the late 60s, 69. And they actually stopped the war for 48 hours because Pele, the king, was in town. Wow. You know, <laughs> so this is how much countries love football. And then you had O'Reilly, you know, known as the king, the only, the only mm. male to win three World Cups. And when he arrived, he was fated by the prime ministers and presidents and, and you know, given all the gifts and awards. But as soon as he walked the streets... Everyone, everyone knew who he was. And then when he went, what he did, instead of going and playing in Europe and taking all that money, he stayed, he stayed very loyal to Santos. Mm. But near the end of his career, he did make a, an important move. He believed that the global game should conquer all continents and that it needed a push in the USA, in North yeah. America. And so he went there with the Cosmos and they won the title, I think it was in 77, and he, and he retired. But he, that's why he went. He went there to bring the game to, you know, the last uh, great continent that at that time, you know, was, was more focused on other sports. And so he made a big contribution in the early 70s to what we see the growth of the game, even in the USA today. Uh, Craig Foster, what can football do to, cement's not the right word, but to honour his legacy, to make sure it continues to live on mm-hmm. now that he has left us? There is a certain trophy that doesn't have a name on it, uh, anymore, which he's held aloft three times. Um, what yeah. what can the game do to honour and recognise yeah. him? Um, well, firstly, you know, he was very close to Australia as well. So if we look at the domestic context, you know, he came here in 2015 and, and I travelled with my old um, loved colleague, Les Murray. It was his oh, retirement yep. tour. And he brought Pelé out. Pelé came out and we went around the country doing lunches with these two guys. And it was like the Pied Pipers. I mean, it was, you know, Les was loved in Australia and this guy's just, whenever he turns up, was crazy. So, and we went around just doing these lunches and they just, you know, I'd MC it, not do too much, just take some photos. And these guys would just sit and, of course, Les would just interview him. And, you know, they were magic times. He was close to Johnny Warren. Of course, he played here in 72. And he knows the, the, the Brazilian community here very well. So, um, you know, we're, we've been in, in touch the last couple of weeks. You know, we, we, we knew this was kind of inevitable. So there'll be something happened today, probably in Sydney. We might go down around the Opera House or something. So we'll get together there. But more broadly, look, he'll have stat- he's, uh, he has statues already. You know, have these things and people will do something. But what I'd like to see more is a discussion in football about the values that he stood for mm. and how football can bring those to life in a greater way than it does today because that was the real legacy of him. It was the person. 
Mm. Um, all the goals did, 1,281 goals, they just gave him an opportunity to live his life in a way um, that you know really manifests what the game should be all about. Craig, thank you so much. And, wow, I, I, you'd almost buried the lead, and I knew you wouldn't want to make it about yourself, but I'm sure you will treasure those moments travelling with Palais. And when we speak okay. again, I'll, we, we'll get you to speak exclusively on, on, on what you experienced with him. But, but thank you sure. so much for being with us today to, to remember him and, and honour him on a very sad day for not just football, as we said, but for sport. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll speak to you soon. No, my pleasure. Craig Foster from Stan Sport, uh, Australian football champion, speaking about the death of an icon in Palais today. Smith to Ngidi. Football got it. Bowled him. The deed finished by Steve Smith. Australia inflicted MCG thrashing on South Africa. And for the first time in 17 years on these shores, they win a series against the South Africans. Australia compelling through the two test matches. They win by an innings and 182 runs in the Boxing Day tests. Welcome back to Mornings on SEN. Sam Hargraves with you right around the country. Thanks to Host Plus. That's A Plus. You can call in anytime. 1300 736 736 is the number for anyone listening anywhere around Australia right now. 1300 736 736 for tyre power. Your tyre experts. You can text in on the 40 Winks Temper text line. That number is 0433 98 11 16. Uh, joining us uh, just to kick things off in this hour, the, uh, the opener. So Jerry Whiteley, the captain of the SEN Test Commentary team, and opening uh, every innings with him, uh, SEN's cricket expert, thanks to Anaconda, hit summer for six with Anaconda's 10% price beat guarantee. Simon Kadich has been good enough to jump on the line to sum up Australia's performance so far this summer. Cat, hello, mate. Good morning. How good is this team? Yeah, they're very good. I think uh, it's been a commanding summer so far, and it looks like they're primed for you know bigger things, and obviously those bigger challenges are coming soon in India and England, where in the last couple of times we've toured there, it's been hard work to win, which historically India, I think we've only won there in 2004, and that was the first time in about 38 years, and then England, the last time we won in England was in 2001, so there's some good challenges for this group, and I think that's something that they're really looking forward to, to keep raising the bar, and so far this summer they've been superb. I mean, they've steamrolled who, well, what was the second-ranked team, South Africa, in six days of Test cricket in the last two weeks uh, in Brisbane at the MCG. And batting, bowling, Alex Carey beyond the stumps. Uh, it's been, yeah, fantastic to watch. So many individual moments. Um, the matches haven't quite lived up, but the moments have certainly been there, Kat. Have you got one that certainly stands out for you? Oh, it's pretty tough. I mean, fresh in my mind, Alex Carey's 100 in the MCG was mm. special. I mean, the way he timed the ball uh, was fantastic to watch. And he hadn't really had much time at the crease this summer. I think Warner's 200, given he was at his back to the wall and all the scrutiny on him regarding no runs and everything that happened with CA and the botched hearing about the leadership, that was special as well in his 100th test. Um, the bowlers have all been fantastic. I mean... Scotty Boland on a number of occasions this year has struck you know, twice, three times in an over. He's been superb. It, it's hard to pick. I, I think it's been a real collective effort. So, in a way, I think that's what has done the job. It's, it's been 11 guys hunting as a pack with bat, ball in the field. You know, all Labashane's run-outs, Stark's run-outs. I, I think it's just... That, that sums up where this group's at. It's a real collective unit. And I think they keep playing like that, it'll hold them in good stead for India because 
that is going to be their biggest challenge with bat and ball in those conditions against what is a very good Indian team playing at home. So yeah, it's hard to pinpoint one person because I think, uh, you know, Andrew McDonald will be very proud of the collective nature of this group mm. of them. Simon Caddis, the other thing too is it would also be really helpful for them with their relationship with the Australian cricket public, which we've got... We're a bit unsure about where it sits at the moment with some low crowds and then we've got some good crowds on some days and, and then, we you know, we look at the text machine while we're on air and some of the calls that we get. But, you know, to Dave Warner to, to maybe uh, channel a bit of Dino in uh, 1986 in, in Chennai or Madras as it was known then, um, that was about 40 degrees and 80% humidity that day. For Dave Warner, 37 degrees and about 30% humidity. But the toughest conditions you'll play in in Australia to be literally carried off the field. And then that sets a standard, doesn't it, for Mitchell Stark to be bleeding, for literally bleeding for his country with a busted digit. Cam Green comes out to bat again with a broken finger. Despite those guys effectively being ruled out for the next test, they did not want to uh, drop the ball that Dave Warner had carried and been carried off holding in his incredibly stoic and, and courageous and tough innings. So these little things too, when... Some of the real naysayers of the Australian cricket public might go, oh, you know, pampered this and, and, and whatever it be, sandpapered that and uh, whatever it might be. You can't deny the toughness that was shown by the team as well. And those things, those things mean something, I think, to the, to the cricket fan. Exactly. I think you can't ha- help but have admiration for all of those performances. I think, you know, it would have been easy for both Green and Stark to say, you know, the test match is over for us with mm. busted fingers. And, um, you could completely understand that because it's certainly not easy playing when you're fully fit, let alone when you've got nasty injuries like that, uh, particularly with Cameron Green batting with Alex Carey. I mean, that was you know wonderful to see his reaction. Yes. He went up before Alex Carey even celebrated himself for the 100. And then uh, Mitchell Stark, you know, to begin to get back ball, ball as well as he probably has all summer. Um, you know, that was fantastic to see. And, Davey Warner, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, you know, in your 100th test and scoring mm. a double 100 in those conditions. And he, and the South Africans threw everything at him, particularly yep. Norkia. He threw the kitchen sink at him. And with and Warner was able to withstand a, a number of times throughout a couple of different spells with both the new ball and then when he was in the 90s. And credit to him for the way he played because it was a very, very classy knock as well. He didn't really put, you know... It didn't do too much wrong from a, um, you know, the way he compiled that innings and, and the way he moved and the way he ran between wickets, apart from the mix up with Labashane. That was probably the only moment, whereas the rest of it was, was high class batting at test level and then physical nature of it all as well. Um, it was quite remarkable. Look, there's no doubt he's always going to be a polarising figure in Australian cricket. And what's done is done. He can't change that now, but all he can do is play as well as he possibly can for that team. And, and mm. that's what he's trying to do in the twilight of his career. And you can't help but admire the way he went about it, given you know the scrutiny that was on him and the lack of runs leading into that test match. But, um, you know, he responded magnificently. Yeah, I think it's the defining... I mean, a lot of people have said this before me, but the defining moment of his career... I know the triple ton against Pakistan a few years ago, but this was very different. This was made of the toughest stuff in the hardest of circumstances, as you say. And when it comes to Cam Green, so many people off the text, Simon Cadditch, saying, loved the Pfeiffer, 
but I'll have the 51 with a broken finger and the celebration for Alex Carey. That's the thing that people are falling in love with. So uh, these are important little moments to keep building that relationship and re-strengthening it after we saw what it really means to adore your team during the T20 World Cup with the Indian fans, Pakistani fans, the Sri Lankans, Zimbabwe, you know, all those, they just worship the ground that these guys walk on. And um, whilst we probably haven't ever really been to that level, but getting back to something near it, these moments are important um, in doing that. What what of South Africa? So you're a coach, you coach IBL, you're going to go over there and coach in their uh, T20 competition. It seemed like even the bowling, which was their main strength, that let them down. The batting was nowhere near it. West Indies scored more runs in their two tests than South Africa have in their first two. But even the little things, Cat, running between the wickets, fielding, tactics, it all just seemed to go by the wayside. What did you make of it? Yeah, look, it's been poor. Um, there's no other way to hide around it. They, they haven't been up to scratch. And yet, mm. prior to that Brisbane test, they ranked number two and everyone thought it was going to be a heavyweight bout. The biggest question on them leading into this series, and everyone did pose it, was around their batting because it did look inexperienced, particularly at test level, compared to what they've had in the past. They've had some unbelievable players, you know, world-class players for a long period of time in their top six. And they've all gone now. So there's no more Faf Duplessis and Smith and Ambler and Callis and A.B. de Villiers and de Kock and all these guys that they've had for so many years. And now changing the guard. I mean, back in the day, probably the last time they toured here, Elgar was probably their sixth best batsman. Now he's their best batsman. He's captain. He hasn't scored a test hundred as skipper. And he's averaging probably around about 30 now. It's probably dropped under 30 after these last few test matches. So... He's under the pump because he's got the weapons at his disposal with the ball. That's clear for everyone to see in terms of what he's got with Norkia and Rabada and, and young Yatsen and Maharaj. His record in Test cricket is very good and, and so is Ngidi. But as a group, they, they didn't hunt as a pack compared to the Australian attack. And there'll be questions raised on his performance, not just with the bat, but particularly with his captaincy. Because at times, they're, they're tactically, they were way off the mark with the fields they were setting, the lengths they were bowling, and, and he's responsible for that. So that's going to be you know, a question that's asked, particularly if Australia go on and steamroll them 3-0 in this series, which I expect they should. Um, there's probably not much coming back from this situation for South Africa unless they change a number of personnel and, and a few guys fire up with the bat. But Australia deserve a lot of the credit because they put them under that pressure. Um, but South Africa... Look, there's always questions after their system and their selections and where they're at. And I mean, this new SA T20 league is probably going to put some pressure on their test cricket because they've carved out a window of sort of four or five weeks for it in January for the next 10 years where they won't play any international cricket in that window. They'll play this competition and, and all of their uh, South African international players will be fully available for it. So they're already cut back on their four-day cricket domestically, which is probably a concern for their test stuff going forward. So it's in a really delicate position at the moment, test cricket. And I think you know people are realising that you know we have a very, very good team at the moment. But if there's not much competition around, then you know people will start to turn off and go, well, why would I want to watch this when it's just a one-sided affair all the time and, and countries aren't up to scratch, particularly... It's always difficult because playing Australia in Australia is always a tough ask. But... Mm. If Australia continue to dominate uh, overseas as well in this period, then you know, and there's only a few teams competing, whether it's you know us and India and England, then you know, Test cricket will be will be challenged. That's for sure. Simon Cadditch, a lot of a lot is made of, of when a batter is captain, as has often been the case in Australian history, especially and and throughout the world. 
Pat Cummins' record as captain as a bowler is quite extraordinary. He's only lost the one test as skipper, but 46 wickets at 20.21, an economy of 2.62. No captain has done that before. How impressed are you with, with Pat Cummins as a captain, but also performing with the mantle? Yeah, extremely impressed. I mean, those numbers speak for itself. But I think even on day one when... You know, Australia won the toss and bowled. I mean, that was a bat first wicket, probably nine times out of ten. But this attack and Pat Cummins is so confident mm. of what they can do to this South African batting lineup. It was a pretty much a sign that they said we're not worried about you know what they've got. We know that if we're on and we hunt as a pack like we have all summer, we'll get the job done, and they did. And South Africa at times handed it to them with runouts and some poor shot selection and stuff like that. But a lot of that is brought about because of the pressure that the Australian attack builds up. And it's a class attack. A lot of these guys, when they finish their careers, will go down as, as all-time greats in Australian cricket. Where We're seeing it with Lyon you know, climbing right up the, the, the wicket tally chart in Australian cricket history. And, and Stark with recently passing 300. And Cummins and Hazelwood and, and these guys will, will be the same by the time they finish their careers. And the way Scotty Boland's going and, and the fact that how many wickets he takes in the second innings won't take him along and he'll rack up 100 test wickets. So, you know, it's great to see. Cameron Green is emerging beautifully in his role. And, you know, Pat Cummins, I think he deserves a lot of credit. He, he copped a fair bit of flack recently over, you know, stuff that's been in the press around Justin's departure and, um, and then even some of that sponsorship stuff. But, you know, in terms of what they're doing on the field, you can't help but have admiration for the way they're going about it and playing their cricket. And he deserves a lot of credit because he's getting the best out of the collective and the the guys individually. And that's what leadership's all about. It's not just about his own game, which has been remarkable. It's also about seeing these 10 other guys all getting better under his leadership and, and inspiration. And I think um, we're seeing that with all of the other players that are getting picked and even the guys that are coming in to do a role for a test here or there, whether it's Anissa or Boland coming in last summer and now being part of it and potentially even the guys that come in at Sydney. It's an environment that he's created along with the coaching staff and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Just two quick ones from me, Kat, before I let you go. Selection for the Sydney test. What do you think will happen, but what would you like to see happen? So Green and Stark out reports today that Agar and Renshaw are in contention. Hazelwood has declared he's fit. Who would you be picking, but who do you think will be picked? Well, I think they will pick Morris by the sound of it after yeah. um, McDonald spoke to Jared the other day in terms of the straight swap for Stark. And I don't mind that at all because I think the youngster's done well for WA this year. I think he's got 27 shield wickets and bowl quick and, and there's something about him. And they might want to have a look at him before this Indian tour because the last time we won there in 2004, having been a part of that tour, um, our quicks did a fantastic job with reverse swing. And, and it is a way to unsettle the Indians. They love playing spin. So I understand they'll will probably try and play two spinners, but we exposed them in that series with three quicks going hard all day, reversing it and, and bowling with defensive fields, but attacking lines and lengths, and we got the job done. So I think from that perspective, I, I think he'll be in the mix for that, um, given Stark's injury. And then the other one, I can see Agar playing in Sydney, um, mm. just for the balance of the team, because I can't see Pat Cummins moving up to the number seven position. Um, and look, whilst Agar's numbers haven't been great in shield cricket this year, he is in, around the international setup with the white ball stuff. Um, it's hard to get, get a gauge because he's been playing BBL at the moment. He's going well for the Scorchers, but mm. um, he's a gun fielder and he can bat a bit. But yeah, he'll probably, I think he'll come into the mix. Um, what I'd like to see, look, to be honest, that last position, I think it's really hard to 
there's no real straight swaps for Cameron Green at the moment. I really like the look of young Aaron Hardy in WA, who's had a very good shield season last year when they won it, and he got 180 odd sticks in the final. Um, and he can bowl. And he and Cameron Green have played a lot of junior cricket uh, with each other growing up in yeah. Perth. And he's going to be a very good player. Um, whether he's ready for Test cricket, that's another matter. But you know, he's someone that could come comfortably come into that sort of number six, seven role. But I'm also glad that if Alex Carey gets a chance to bat at six, you know, I think that's great reward for him having got the hundred at the MCG. So. Look, at the moment, I, to be honest, I don't think it matters that last spot who plays because I honestly think this team is so strong at the yeah. moment with how they're performing. That last spot, like Cameron Green found this summer, he was just like a bit of a role player with bat and ball until recently at the MCG when when uh, it unfolded the way it did. So, um, look, I think they're in a, a position where it'll, it'll be a luxury. Whoever plays uh, at the SCG, it'll be a great opportunity for them. Uh, last one, Kat. So as someone who was there in 2001 in England, there in 2004 against India, what would it mean for this team if they were to conquer those incredibly hard to do so frontiers? Yeah, they are huge challenges. Um, I think if they, if they conquer both, then they have every right to rival the great Australian teams of that period um, mm. because history shows how difficult it is, particularly in India, um, and having to it there a number of times where... You know, 04 was my first tour and we won. It was, and to this day, it's probably the highlight of my test career from a team perspective, winning that series. Um, having been a part of the 01 series, it was different because I was, you know, just a, a squad player, really. Um, whereas that one played a, a decent part in it uh, with Ricky being injured. But yeah, England's another challenge as well because they're playing great cricket as well. And they are very strong at home, with their, particularly their bowlers, Jimmy and, and Brody and these guys love bowling in England. So, it will be a challenge for our batsmen there because it's so different to playing here in Australia. So if they tick these two challenges off, then I, I think everyone has every right to say, well, look, this team is right up there with the great Australian teams of that era, um, you know, through the, the 90s and 2000s. Love your work, Kat. Thanks so much for your time today and good luck over in South Africa. We'll speak to you soon. My pleasure. Simon Kadich, uh, one of our greats, an SEN cricket expert. Thanks to Anaconda. Hit someone for six with Anaconda's 10% price beat guarantee. A lot of people pointing out to uh, previous caller Simon that, uh, while well, South Africa haven't really given any highlights to discuss, they were ranked number two coming into this. So they weren't nobodies in the context of uh, the ICC rankings and the, T- and the Test uh, Championship, the World Test Championship rankings as well. one three hundred seven three six seven three six. Before Chris Anstey joins us, Billy and Ascot Vale. Billy, hello, mate. Yeah, good. Look, morning, Sammy. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, just on the cricket on your previous callers there, um, I agree that um, I don't know if Australia was fully tested in the last couple of months with these tests. So I think the big test is definitely going to be the Tour of India and mm. uh, England next season. So that'll really judge and really show where Australia is really at. If they can do what they did to West Indies and South Africa, to India and England, then you can say that definitely we're a powerhouse again. Um, and also, did the empty seats uh, yesterday at the cricket get their tickets back too? I just the crowd was very low. I think most people knew that the the game was well and truly done, probably after a day and a half. So it is disappointing. But as you said, uh, South Africa was number two, so they weren't nobodies. But um, I was just surprised how how weak their batting is. I was and the demise. I mean, they were just such a powerhouse, South Africa, ten years ago. Yeah, they were. I mean, you know, and they, they just didn't get the best out of what their best was, and that was their bowling lineup. And Norkia, you know, um, he had a decent test um, and took some wickets, but Rabada was, 
nowhere near the rabata that we've come to know and that we've seen, especially this year. I mean, you know, there's people starting to bring out their world test teams. I think Crick Info has him in the test team uh, of the year as well, and I think a lot of people will, but his performance didn't really live up, and it was pointed out by their bowling coach as well, live up to the high standard that he set. So, you know, what they were relying on was their bowling, and and it just didn't come uh, to the fore for them, and then everything else failing as abysmally as it did around them. I mean, not able to to buy a century and, and, and I think only one or two half centuries. Um, Bavuma showed some fight um, in the second innings in, in this test, but their fielding was bad. Their, their tactics were um, head scratching and eyebrow raising, the running between wickets, just basic stuff seemed to evade them. So it's it really, there's hard to find any positive at all for South Africa, but they've got a test to try and gain something out of the tour. Really appreciate your call, Billy, and thanks for ringing up to make it one three hundred seven three six seven three six. This man, I'm sure, is walking on cloud nine. It's not every day that you get voted the nineteenth most powerful person in Australian basketball. A Herald Sun story has him exactly that spot, just one spot below our boss Hutchie. So Chris Anstey, one of our basketballing greats, the three-time NBL champion, NBL MVP, former NBA player, uh, and just an all-round good bloke, has been good enough to jump on. Hello, mate. How you going? That's, that's too kind. I'm not sure how they come up with uh, that type of a list, but it's, uh, no, it's nice to be doing some things that are impacting some people. Uh, well, look, you, you can only just accept the accolades that come your way, Chris Anstey, with the fine work that you're doing, and we're going to get to some of that uh, in just a moment. Um, and you're with us, thanks to Lauren X Cleaning, Google Lauren X Cleaning today. Um, the NBL last night, there was a big build-up um, uh, to this game and, and Brisbane really needed to, to get a win here if they were any chance of staying in touch um, with that top six. But uh, Adelaide got the chocolates. They came from behind. How did you see the performance from the 36ers? Yeah, just workmanlike. And I think for a team like Adelaide, who's got to win those close games where perhaps they don't play as well as they, they could or when they're missing key players like Mitch McCarron to get a win like that, to put themselves in the top six and, and in that playing position is really important as they integrate Ian Clark into the team. So I think it's a really important win for them. For Brisbane, uh, look, they look like they've settled a little bit, but it's you know, a little too little too late. Their, their season's done. Um, you know, they're going to be on the outside looking when playoffs come around. And look, they've just been really disorganised this year. They've made some bad choices away from the basketball court, and I think that's just trickled down. So, look, it's, it was an interesting game. It's always tough to win games this time of year when you've got holiday season and family out doing what they do and celebrating the season, and you're sort of locked into to doing your job. So, big win for Adelaide and just another loss for Brisbane to, to add to their tally for the year, unfortunately, for them. Christmas Day basketball, Chris Anstey. I loved it. It seemed that the people did as well. 7,000 there and over 300,000 watching. What was your take on Christmas Day NBL? Exactly that. I loved it. I sat and I watched it with my family. Um, I, I probably had my name to the list of people who were appreciative of, of the players. And not only the players, I think that's a really easy one to be grateful for, but the, the staff, yeah. whether they, you know, the basketball court, the, the the arena staff, all these type of people who need to work on Christmas Day. But at the same time, let's not forget the teams that play on Christmas Eve who don't get to travel back until Christmas lunchtime or the ones who play on Boxing Day who travel on Christmas Day. And all those teams are away as well, probably not as noticeably obvious, but just to be in the you know, the forefront of that as a sport, to play a game on Christmas Day. I'd, I'd love to see two games next year. I'd love to see the Melbourne teams play each other 
and the New South Wales teams play each other and take away a little bit of the travel uh, for the players and the staff and, and, and keep them in state and you know, be able to settle in on Christmas evening, watch two back-to-back NBL games with our family and friends. And, you know, if you're like me and most people who listen to this station, I think might be that we're always looking for some sport to watch on television. And this yep. Christmas Day, uh, the NBL was the only choice we had. And I think the number of viewers who watched reflected that we wanted something on TV and supported it with great numbers. There's an appetite, that's for sure, um, for it. And And here's the thing, like in all things in life, Chris, if you're not a fan of it and you don't want it to happen you've got a very clear choice. You just don't have to watch it, but you shouldn't be so vocal in denying other people the opportunity to do so, I would have thought. Couldn't agree more. It's a little bit like social media. If you don't like it, don't read it. If you yes. don't want it to be on television, you don't have to turn it on, but uh, you can still always watch reruns of A Christmas Miracle or something like yep. that. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. Um, hey, Sydney Kings, the latest standout is their best competition, best, and who are the genuine contenders in and around them? Yeah, they are. Um, and I've been really, really impressed, like most people, with New Zealand and Cairns this year. And their sustained, you know, great performances have probably surprised me a little bit, as Tasmania did last season. But Sydney remained the standout. And for me, look, I really think the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix might be, if they're at full strength, may provide the biggest challenge to the Sydney Kings. They've got great depth. They've got great imports. You know, Mitch Creek's one of the top handful of players in the league mm. at the moment. Uh, they defend really well and they can score the basketball. So, yeah, they, they've sort of flown or, or performed in the shadow of Melbourne United since they've come into the league. And I think this is the year that United look like missing the playoffs. So they'd need to win at least six of their last eight games to, to, to get in. Um, it could be Phoenix's year for, for basketball in Melbourne to, to really give these playoffs a shake. And I sort of see them as the greatest threat uh, to Sydney at the moment with an asterisk next to Adelaide. I'm not sure how that'll all fit with Ian Clark in and a full roster. They've certainly invested heavily in making sure they make a run at the championship this year and they've got the talent to do so. But uh, look, I'd love to see New Zealand and Cairns remain competitive. I just feel that when it really gets down, you know, the teams who've been there before, mm. you know, there's probably a little bit of, uh, you know, I don't think you can win one first time around. I think that that, that experience that the other teams have had might hold them in pretty good stead. Uh, it's been a massive week in the NBA. Luka Doncic, the first player to do a 60-20-10 game, and we've got Dyson Daniels and Josh Giddy playing really well. Josh Ingles, uh, Joe Ingles is back out there playing uh, as well. So there's so much positive to talk about from the NBA, but uh, then we get uh, what happened uh, with Detroit. Um, and Orlando, Mo Wagner uh, starting that all in brawl and then copping one to the back of their head. How did you view that? I, I'm not across it as much as probably what it should have been. I've seen the highlights, mm. but you never want to see that. And I, I, I probably what I would say is that instead of talking about that element of it, I, I think the way they handled it, it historically, <laughs> the Palace of Detroit was the scene of probably the biggest all-in yep. brawl that became dangerous of all time. And many people may have seen the Malice in the Palace documentary. And you could you could hear the court announcer encouraging people, urging people to stay in their seats. Yes. Make sure they don't leave. They'd be arrested if they left. And I think that you clearly they've been talking about that for years and years now. And to have a situation like that's disappointing. But to handle it as well as they did... Um, I think was really positive for the Detroit Basketball Club. So good good job to them. D- disappointing to the players involved, but uh, 
at the end of the day, it could have been a lot worse. And, you know, there are a lot more positive things to talk about in the NBA, as you've just mentioned, with, with the Australians and some of the performances going on, like Luka Doncic's historical night a couple of nights ago. Well, one of the positive things that's uh, going to be happening very soon, uh, you have just returned from the US, where I'm sure you've just been tying up loose ends of something incredibly exciting. We've had Shaq out there this year, um, but you being an import uh, and an international player in the NBA are going to bring out a man that may lay claim to being the greatest ever import into the NBA, although Luca's coming for his title. And ironically, it's a man who led the Dallas Mavericks to a title. He's coming to Australia next month. Dirk Nowitzki is coming. You're bringing him out here. Tell us about all this, please. Exactly that. We, you know, we've jumped into this space since COVID and we toured Josh Giddy around, which was a no-brainer. You know, we've played with his dad and, you know, Was is great and Josh is a great kid. And we got, we convinced Luke Longley to speak publicly for the first time in October. <laughs> that would have been the hardest of all. <laughs> it was fantastic. And yeah, but I just reckon it's a little bit different. We, we, we get a little bit of time with them that the messaging was great. And when you look at someone of high profile with an incredible story to tell and Someone who's willing to, to spend a lot of time uh, you know, with the people that they come across. Dirk was top of my list, and you know, he's about to become a, a Basketball Hall of Fame member. He's just had his statue unveiled in front of the Dallas Arena, and as you said, in my mind, he's clearly one of the, if not the greatest non-American basketball player in the history of the game and someone who's revolutionised the game. And to get some insight in, into how he's you know, training processes were, how his mind, how his mindset was as he went through that. And I played with him his first year in the league and you just wouldn't have picked it 25 years ago. He, yep. he turned up in a Dallas, he was homesick. He, he didn't perform very well, but geez, he trained hard and he did it really, really unconventionally. So look, he'll, he'll come and share some of those training drills on court with the kids in Melbourne on January 10th. We'll, we'll put him in a a big room and he'll tell his story on January 11 in Melbourne and January 18 in Sydney. We'll have plenty of time for Q&A, but I think, you know, most importantly, and, you know, we didn't have anything to do with Shaq when he came out and it was incredible to get him in the country, but I do know there are a lot of disappointed people yeah. who, who missed out on, on meeting Shaq. And look, we're, Dirk's really keen to make sure that the people who have paid to meet him do who've paid for a photo or an autograph get that hey chris where the ad break's going to crash us here and i hate to be so rude but just give us the website so people can get the info and get their tickets yeah the easiest way is just to go to chrisanstey.com.au follow follow your nose to the events and you'll find them love your work my friend thanks for joining us greatly appreciate it we've got some breaking news on the squad for the third and final test uh, of our test summer the sydney test the pink test starts on january 4 you won't miss a ball of it on sen this just in, Ashton Agar and Matt Renshaw have been added to the test squad for the Sydney test in place of Mitchell Stark and Cameron Green. Our very own uh, Peter Lawler was writing about this earlier this morning. Gerald Waitley was on earlier this morning and said if he's writing it, I'm fairly sure it'll happen because they're right on the money, those guys, with selection stories. And uh, it's proven to be 100% accurate from Peter Lawler again. So Ashton Agar will come in. I don't think has played a test since I'm going to say 2017, roughly. Uh, and Matt Renshaw, we'll just get him up to see. Uh, we'll get, we won't get him personally up, but we'll get his numbers up to see when the last time he uh, played uh, a test was as well. Um, 0433981116. Got some quotes here too from uh, Tony Donamade from the selection table who says, 
Matthew is included as a versatile batting option who is in good form, including an unbeaten century in the recent PM's 11 tour match against the West Indies. In terms of fast bowlers, it's a blessing to have Josh Hazelwood return, while Lance Morris offers a genuine point of difference with his raw pace and skill. Um, Ashton offers a second spin option should the Sydney pitch be conducive to turn, as it has done in the past. He also brings a solid batting component. We all remember um, his debut, the 98, uh, over in the Ashes in England. This squad will cover all bases for when we get to Sydney and assess the conditions closer to the test match. Will the curator of the SCG essentially encouraged, without actually doing so, Australia to take in a second spinner? So your, your reaction to the squad for the third and final test of the summer, Ashton Agar and Matt Renshaw have been added to the squad, we believe, and we'll hear from Andrew McDonald. Um, in just a moment uh, about Lance Morris coming in and essentially assuring that he would come in as a replacement for Mitch Stark. So there's some news just to hand. Ray's in Ashwood who wants to talk about the Aussie team. G'day, Ray. Yeah, g'day. How are you? Um, yeah, really excited about this Morris kid. Um, apparently they were talking him up. The commentators saw him in the nets and said he's really, really quick and he's got good control. So that'll be really interesting to see him play, even, even though it's in Sydney. And uh, having Agar as well, um, just just as a point, you know, a bit different. And if we're going to go to India, we've got to learn to sort of um, have these guys who can play in all sorts of conditions as well. So it, it's looking a pretty good squad, Renshaw and uh, as well. I mean, he's played a bit of tests now. So and he's in good form. So I really like what they're doing. And also... The way we won, we won, um, we were ruthless, but we weren't obnoxious. And and that's something that was really good. It sort of, mm. it, you know, it did it to the, to the uh, public as well. And, you know, we beat South Africa. I mean, they were second in the world. And I don't hear them complaining about this, te- this uh, wicket, um, as they did against Brisbane. I mean, that was quite interesting that, you know, it, it was, uh, I think, head hit. 90 in that test, in the first test. So it was there if you are good enough. The runs were there if you are good enough. So um, you just got to be a, a player who can play in all conditions. That's all. Uh, it's, a, it's a great shout, Ray. Appreciate you ringing up to make. And I love that point about, uh, um, you know, not being arrogant in the way that they went about their cricket. It's, it's a good point. I think it's an important point and one that they're really conscious of as well. As, and I think they're aware that there, there's still a rebuilding of the relationship with the Australian cricket public as well. Just when it comes to Lance Morris, so Sheffield Shield stats this year, uh, he's a leading wicket taker, has played the five matches, has bowled in nine innings, has taken 27 wickets at an average of 18.4, an economy rate of 3.3. His best is five for 36 and he's coming off a good season last year. Uh, as well, he's taken two more wickets than uh, Mark Steckety. He's taken three more wickets than Michael Nisa. Will Sutherland is the other interesting one uh, who's taken 23 wickets for the year as, as a bowling all-rounder. Um, Ashton Agar this year, when it comes to spinners, um, just having a look down the page, he, I don't think he's played a ton uh, of, of shield cricket this year. I'm going to have to go right down the page to to try and find him. In fact, I don't actually know if he has played Shield cricket at all this year. But in terms of Shield run scorers, if we're looking to bring batters in, Pete Hanscom's actually going to join me later this hour. He's um, almost 100 runs ahead of the next highest run scorer, which ironically um, is Cam Bancroft, uh, has the second most runs this year in Shield cricket. Uh, But Peter Hanscom has the two centuries and a half century from five 
matches eight innings, 571 runs, the highest of 281. He's averaging 81.57. Bancroft averaging 53 this year with three centuries uh, in his 483 runs. Uh, Ward from Tasmania is the other opener who's doing well. Um, And just trying to find Renshaw uh, on that group. Need to go down the page a little bit. Scored 310 runs in eight innings. He is averaging 51.66, a century and a half century to his name. But he's been slowly reasserting himself um, in the lower levels um, and would looking be looking to add to his 11 tests. So he debuted, if you remember, um, as a, I reckon he was about tw- he's 26 years of age, Renshaw. He's still really young. Um, test cap number 449. He debuted in uh, at the Gabba in 2016 against South Africa. His last test was in 2018 also against South Africa. One century and three half centuries. 636 runs at an average uh, of 33.47. So he debuted as a kid, really. Uh, and now at 26 years of age, with a lot more experience under his belt, has had to eat some humble pie, go back and, and start again. Um, and so he would be just champing at the bit to get that other chance. And, and Ashton Agar has played four test matches. We remember that 98 um, on debut in 2015 during the Ashes series there. Um, that was uh, 2017, rather. Uh, sorry, 2013, that was. Test cap number 434. And then he played his last test in 2017 against Bangladesh. So it's been a long time for these guys to get that chance again. one three hundred seven three six seven three six to have your say on that. Um, some of the texts that have come through, uh, and I'll just rifle through as many of these as I can. For all the great performances, there's a tangible lack of excitement by the cricketing public to what we've seen this summer. That's come through. Put your name and where you're texting from. We're going national today uh, on SEN. Um, if you put all the comments together, it seems like Scotty Boland is going to get a rest this test. Hazelwood and Morris in. If it's spin-friendly, Agar plays. If it's not, Renshaw plays. Steve on the road. So, Steve, that was uh, at 11 o'clock this morning. So uh, you weren't far off. Um, with Renshaw in, does that mean Marcus Harris has no hope? That's from Daryl in Reservoir. That's an interesting one where I think Harris has averaged about 25. He's been given some sustained runs within the side. Hasn't quite been able to get it to the level that he has in shield cricket where he's been a dominant force. Um, why, uh, off the text, surely a Boxing Day test versus New Zealand would be a better spectacle than the one-sided game we've seen. The Kiwis are a gutsy quality side. The rivalry is already there. The crowd would be huge. Half of New Zealand live here anyway with a winky emoji. Well, they came out 2019-2020 and it was a dead set fizzer uh, as a series. They barely fired a shot, uh, the Kiwis. Um, but I'm with you. I'd love to see uh, New Zealand here more regularly, and I think it would certainly create a, a big crowd. I might even try to find the numbers for the crowd when they did come out in 2019 uh, and 2020 as well. Alex, uh, Big Al says, Sam, the low crowd for the first test in Perth was the result of dumb fixturing and ticket prices. West Australians are supportive of cricket, as demonstrated by the BBL attendances. I made the comment before that maybe uh, their test would be under threat. Let's put a pause in your text because uh, the number one cricket writer in the space and one of our very own Peter Lawler's been good enough to jump on after his story this morning has proven to be, uh, well, tarot card read-alike uh, in its accuracy. Uh, Peter Lawler, hello, mate. Great to have you on. <laughs> You've got to get one right occasionally. <laughs> oh, you're too humble. You're too humble. Um, so when did you get a whiff that this is how the, the selectors were going to, to go? Um, well, I was leaving the ground last night. Don't mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. um, it's quite a surprise, isn't it? It's not one, um, you know, often these things you can sort of connect the dots and uh, work them out. And uh, I suppose there are a few things working in, like, pointing towards Renshaw's inclusion. Um, Cummins said in the press conference that 
um, Greeny was irreplaceable uh, and talked about having someone who can bat in the top six. There's also that indication that, you know, they'll be looking toward India. Um, and, I mean, those two things point to a Ashton Agar as much as they point to um, Renshaw. And when you look at uh, Renshaw's numbers, they're absolutely compelling. So, you know, if you are looking for another batsman, he's the guy to go with. He went, he played in uh, England this winter, or in our winter, in their summer, of course. I think he averaged about 48, Somerset, had a couple of hundreds there. He's going, he's Going like the Clappers for Queensland, scored a 200, not out against New South Wales. Recently had a century and an 80 in the Prime Minister's 11 match against yep. the West Indies, averaging about 80-odd. And, and you know, he's, he's in that sweet spot, isn't he, where he, he's had a had a taste of cricket and had it taken away from him. It's gen, you know, it's generally what happens, isn't it? It's the usual career path of guys like him. They go away, they work on what they have to work on, and he recently declared in a piece with AAP, I think it was, that you know he's ready for a test-free call should it happen. That's not necessarily to say that it will happen in Sydney, but it's a chance. Interesting that if he does come in, you wouldn't expect him to be an opener, Pete. It would appear that he might bat down the order, which he's done at Shield level before being reinstated as opener. He's done it um, in BBL stints as well. Uh, Pete Hanscom is by about 87 or 88 runs of the highest run score in Shield cricket this year. Would you feel like this is... Um, this was maybe his last chance to, to get back into the Australian squad. If Green's not there, a middle-order player was, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that that's the direction that they would go, but it would appear that he's not in the thinking moving forward. Oh, I'm hesitant to make big calls after writing David Warner off lately, so I'm not going to write Pete <laughs> Hanscom off. But, um, oh, look, look um, Renshaw did bat in the middle, uh, down the order last year for Queensland. Mm. Um, uh so I don't know. I, I don't think you'd, you'd never say never with um, with with cricketers. And Peter Hanscom's a very good cricketer. And as you yeah. point out, in very good form himself. Yeah. But, the, mate, is, this, is this the... With Agar and Renshaw, is this not just a Sydney squad inclusion? Is your mind of the belief that this is an India squad inclusion as well? 100%. Absolutely. Particularly Agar. Um Agar, particularly particularly for uh, India, the second spinning option, the one that turns it away a little bit. He was included in the, he was in uh, the pack. He was in the Pakistan squad. That's right. I saw him mm. over there, and, and he was in the Sri Lanka squad. But I think he had to go home because he didn't pull up right, did he? Um, missed missed his chance to make a play a test in his place in his country of birth. Um, so you know, he he yeah he he's obviously um, he's obviously someone they want to take to India. Um, and you know you have to take a cup, you take a spare batsman or two, given all that can happen that far away from home. So this, the same thing goes for for Renshaw. And and look and looking a little bit further ahead of that, you know Renshaw's had that uh, um, had that good that good winter in the UK. So he'd be pretty good for the Ashes too, were he to be needed. But gee. You know that team humming at the moment, isn't it? It's, it's hard. The only way you can get in there is by, by getting the opposition to break someone's fingers, or, or I don't know, doing a Tanya Harding. One of the, one of the, <laughs> one of the oh, it, you don't think Australian cricket's gone through enough drama of recent times, Pete? That we could have a Tanya Harding incident? Oh dear. <laughs> well, it's all been positive stories this week. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> a bit of scandal, do we? Yeah. So how do you see them lining up uh, at the SCG? Morris, uh, we believe, is coming in for Stark. Does Hazelwood come back in? What's the 11 for you, Peter Lawler? Oh, God, I've got the flu. and <laughs> There are so many permutations and combinations. Mm. Uh, it's doing my head in. Um, Andrew McDonald gave a very strong hint that Morris was the, the you know, quasi-like-for-like replacement for Stark. And he was talking about how you know they, they, they look at balance in the squad and in their team selections. And while he's, you know, he's obviously not a left-armer, but, but he's a disruptor and he's mm. got that pace. I'd love to see him play. I mean, how exciting would it be to see a 150K-plus bowler make his debut for Australia. I, mean, I don't reckon we really haven't had somebody like that since Brett Lee. We got a, a, a brief glimpse of Sean Tate, but um, fast bowlers, as we've seen this, as we saw this week with Nokia, they, they, they bring the game to life, don't mm. they? Or maybe yep. I'm showing my bias there, but I, I just, I love seeing batsmen hopping around and sort of, you know, just trying to protect themselves and their wickets as best they can. Pete, you, you you sound like you need a bit of a rest between now and Sydney, so I'm going to let you go and do that. Well done on getting that story up uh, before time, and, and thanks for joining us uh, and giving us some of your time as well uh, on SEN today. Good see ya. Uh, Peter Lawler there, uh, the Australian's chief cricket writer, part of our SEN Test cricket setup. Massive clash tonight for the Melbourne Renegades. They return to Geelong to host the Sydney Sixers. It's a 3v4 clash at GMHBA Stadium, and you catch it right here live across the SEN network. Myself and Liam Pickering doing that game, and one man that will be right in the thick of it. Uh, he's the leading Shield run scorer this year. He is a former star, former Hurricane, and now with the Melbourne Renegades, uh, former Aussie Test player as well. Pete Hanscom's been good enough to jump on. Pete, hello, mate. Morning, mate. Um, the Renegades, strong start of the season. Lost the last couple. It, you've got a star-studded lineup. Um, what's been the consensus about the last two performances? Uh, well, I think it's just it, it, it's been pretty obvious that the batting just hasn't hasn't stood up in the last two games. Um, our bowling unit, fielding unit, been doing a, an incredible job um, putting us in positions to win and, and really. Uh, you know, with the with the personnel that we've got, we you know we're, we're backing ourselves to chase chase those totals down uh, most days. So, uh, well, I think we're a little bit frustrated that maybe we let one out of the last two slides, but also uh, we're very very confident that you know if we get in those positions again, we'll we'll make sure we we chase them down quite easily. Well, the good news is you didn't have to wait long to get another crack at the Sixers uh, after they got you uh, a couple of nights ago. Um, Eight for 149, you, you held them to, and uh, and you guys were bowled out for 115. And as I mentioned before, this lineup and this roster that the Renegades has assembled, the international players throughout, um, you must look around at training and think, yep, yeah, uh, this is a pretty handy outfit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think the Renegades have uh, have done a really good job in recruiting um, this last year, and and yeah, the overseas. You know, obviously we've got two uh, international and, and world-class spinners in uh, Majeev and, and Akil, um, and they've been doing an incredible job for us so far. And, and Andre Russell for the first four games was was awesome and, and helped us win, you know, three of them. Um, and now uh, his replacement's Martin Guttel, who's played you know over 300 T20 games around the world and, and has a has a heap of experience. So. 
Uh, the, the recruiting's been been incredible, and, and even the local players like Tom Rogers coming in, uh, John Wells coming over as well. It's it's really good. So the experience in the team uh, all the way through is is quite strong this year. Uh, you mentioned Martin Guptill, I think number three all time T Twenty international run scorer. What does he bring to the table? Um, we know what he does as a bat, but what uh, is he as a as a teammate and as a an experienced head within the group? Yeah, I haven't haven't had much to do with Guppy yet, but he, he came in uh, obviously last game, um, and just he's just got a calmness about him. Uh, you know that might be a little bit of the the New Zealand way. You know they're they're pretty pretty calm and relaxed over there, but uh, no, he, he he's just got uh, a heap heap of experience. Um, he can help uh, help us through certain certain periods in the game, and and you know help out uh, Maddo as well if. Uh, if Matter uh, feels like he needs any uh, needs any advice or is uncertain about a certain time during the game, you know he's got uh, yeah, Guttel to lean on or, or Finchie to lean on as well. So um, you know we're in a we're in a really really good spot. Um, Pete Hanskin with us from the Melbourne Renegades. Pete, I do appreciate you coming on, and and I know that you know what's coming next. Um, your future aspirations at, at a higher level. You couldn't have done more. To, to try and put yourself to be first cab off the rank if a position opened up in the test side, 571 runs, averaging 81, highest of 281. It's your second century. Um, you had two centuries, including the double at shield level this year. A posse opens up today and you would have just probably got the news or you might have got it earlier that uh, you, you hadn't been added to the squad. Kicking the guts or how do you work your way through all that? Um, yeah, I haven't... haven't heard or, or seen anything about the squad uh, to be honest mate um, but yeah I mean I've, I've done a lot of work over the last last few years and, and starting to get rewards for that with, uh, with my batting over the last couple of years and, and done quite well at Shield Cricket so um, you know all I can do is, is keep uh, yeah, keep putting my best foot forward and, and trying to make as many runs as possible and, and probably when a, when a batting spot comes up that would be uh, that'd be the one, you know. Obviously, Greeny, um, I'm assuming is is the one that's been replaced. I'm not sure who's been replaced. Yeah, by, Renshaw uh, comes in for for Green to the squad. Okay, all right. Well, there we go. Um, oh, mate, I'm sorry, I had to be yeah, the one but, to, to to break that news to you. But um, that's all right. Mate. Do, do you give them a <laughs> do you give them a call? Do you ring Tony or George and and say, hey, can I get a bit of feedback here? Where are we at? Where am I at? India coming up. You're a brilliant player of spin. You've you've worn the baggy green before. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I speak I speak with both both Tony and, and George quite regularly. Um, you know, they've been incredible since coming into the jobs with their with their communication and and letting us know what's going on. So um, I'd, I'd dare say there'll be a, a conversation um, over the next couple of days, and um, we'll get a get a sense and, and feel where things are, but. You know, they've they've obviously got their reasons for it, and, and you got to back them in as well. Ashton Agar, the other player added to the squad, so it might not just be a straight swap of uh, Green for Renshaw, but Renshaw and uh, Agar were the two that, that 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 came in. So, do you you know, are you a vision board kind of guy, Pete Hanscom? Are you a here's what I'm going to achieve in the next calendar year, or are you very much just what's ahead of me right now is all I can control, and then what will come from that uh, will come from that. Yeah, more just what's what's ahead of me. Um, you got a cricket to uh, a game where you've just got to play the ball that's coming coming down to you at that stage, and um, you know hopefully do your best. And and if that's if that means you get up to to higher honours, then then you do, and and that's awesome. But 
you know, also if I'm just, if I'm contributing to, to Victorian wins and, and Renegades wins, you know, over the next few months, then, um, you know, that's, that's awesome as well. And that's, that's basically what I'll be, be trying to do. If anything comes from it, then, you know, that's, it's, that's, that's awesome, but you can't, uh, you can't think too far ahead. We'll get off that topic. Uh, last one before uh, we let you go. You've played a Christmas Eve game before. You've seen the NBL have success with their Christmas Day game this year. How would you feel about uh, being rostered on to play Christmas Day? Not, uh, yeah, not the biggest fan of, of, a, of a Christmas Day uh, game. Um, you know, it is a pretty, pretty special day, and, and we play... Um, a lot of us play cricket 12 months a year, yep. um, traveling all, all the way you know, around the world. And, and we get a lot of time away from our family and, and our friends. And, and, you know, if this is one day of the year where everyone else gets off um, and, you know, if we, we get that off as well, it, it makes it a really special day to, to be with those, those family members and those, those friends that, you know, for most of the year, we don't, we don't actually get to see. So um, no, I'd like to keep it, keep it cricket free. Um, and uh, yeah, and just, just let us let us catch up with some friends. Pete, I really appreciate you giving us some time today. Looking forward to seeing you in action with the Renegades down at Geelong tonight. Uh, that game will be on SEN, and we can't wait to, to see it unfold. And hopefully it's a, it's a big night for you personally, as well as the team. Thanks again for being with us on SEN. Mate, always a pleasure. Thank you. Pete Hanscom, very, very good man. Um, Melbourne Renegades tonight. Uh, you won't miss a ball of that hosting the Sydney Sixers from Geelong. Myself and Liam Pickering to call that game from 6pm right around the country on SEN. Billings now wow. on He's stumped the very next ball. Green pushed it out wide inside the blue line. Billings came at him. Well he beat the outside edge and quick as you like, whipped off the bales. Brilliant piece of bowling, even better piece of keeping from Matty Jilks. And that was a huge wicket for the Thunder last night. They removed the platinum pick for the Brisbane Heat and former teammate in Sam Billings, which has always got to have a nice feel to it. Six for 182, they posted in their 20 overs. The Brisbane Heat made a really good fist of it. Nine for 171, they fell 11 runs short. Chris Green is back as captain of the Sydney Thunder with the injury to Jason Sanger. He's just going through airport security as we speak, um, all thanks to Snaffle. Get your Snaffle straight on at snaffle.com.au. It was the third win in a row for the Sydney Thunder. Chris Green through security, unscathed. Greeny, did you get through okay? Yeah, unscathed, mate. <laughs> feeling feeling good and, uh, yeah, just, just going through security at the moment. So bear with me. I'm just throwing stuff on a tray. That's all right, mate. Uh, we'll bear with you. Um, a great win last night, three in a row um, after yeah. a sluggish start. Well, you got the first win of the season, then hit a couple of roadblocks. Three wins in a row now to be three uh, wins for the year. Um, how difficult conditions last night? It rained pretty much constantly throughout it. Yeah, it was, it was diff- difficult. It was uh, classic Gold Coast weather. Hot, humid, stormy, rainy. Um, but no, it was fantastic. We were actually talking about it in the car this morning. It, it felt like um, the crowd was fantastic. It felt like one of those old school Big Bash games where you know you have great atmosphere there. I think the ground announcer is awesome, and to get a win and come away with a back to back wins against the Heat was fantastic. 
Now, when you need to put the phone in the tray, just let me know and we can bear with you. Um, that'll be a brilliant live radio, and that's the joys well, of going, it. Going through, going through the uh, luggage. No, no, no. I've, I've sent my luggage through. I'm just standing aside. So uh, we'll, we'll keep chatting, mate. I wouldn't do that to you. Good man, good man. Hey, explain us the, the, the decision to change the ball has been now viewed as a pretty controversial one. Brett Lee not wrapped uh, about the call. Um, the umpires made the decision uh, with, I think, five balls left in the Heat's run chase. Explain how that all unfolded. So you, so you said you're not wrapped with it? No, no, Brett Lee wasn't wrapped with it on the call. We just assumed it was because of how wet the ball had gotten, sort of moved on pretty quick. Well, I think... Look, the the feedback they gave to me when the rain was coming in, they said, no matter what, we're staying on. I said, even if it pours, they said, yep. So I said, well, can we have some leniency then if the ball gets wet to, to change it? And, and they sort of thought about it. And that was probably four overs out. And then uh, after that first ball in the last over where Nathan McCandry bowled the waist type, he thought there was a no ball. Um, and after the free hit, I just went to them and said, look, the ball is wet. We had to push through. Wet, wet conditions, can we get it changed to dry because otherwise it's becoming dangerous and, you know, you don't want to see beamers or, or anything like that. So I think it's a common sense rule to, to be able to change the ball at any stage of the game if it's wet. And I, I heard we were getting a bit of flack for it, but it, I, don't, I don't necessarily understand why. If the ball's wet, you can change it at any time just because it got a wick at the next ball. Um, it, it, you know, it doesn't really matter. So I think if the ball's wet, you can change it and... Yeah, I don't know why Brett Lee's act, acting like that. Being a fast bowler himself as well, would understand that it, at times you struggle to hold on to the thing. And when you're trying to execute your Yorkers or execute your skills with a wet ball, it's pretty difficult. Uh, I think his view was with five balls to go, you'd come this far, maybe just see it through. Um, I don't think he went. I, I've only read his comments, haven't heard them, but I just thought I'd throw them up just to get your take because it was an interesting yeah. thing that we don't often see. Yeah, look, I, I think here in Australia it's quite uncommon. But yeah our due is quite limited, but with rain involved, I was actually quite pleased that the umpires were, were willing to um, take that into consideration because the ball was wet and slippery. Even when I was bowling with it early in the night, I, I couldn't really grip it. And, you know, fortunately from playing overseas a lot, particularly in the Caribbean where due comes into the fact from the first over and the ball's wet and you change the ball maybe once or twice throughout the inning, then um, it, you, you sort of adjust your grip accordingly and, and make do. So... Um, yeah, I found it was very wet last night and, and the fact we chose to change. I could have asked to change at the over before. Maybe that would have been better. But at the end yeah. of the day, Samzi said he was fine uh, sure. bowling with it. And then I asked Mac, I said, if we get this ball changed, will it help you? He said, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it was a, a no-brainer in the end. Chris Green, take us into the change rooms after being bowled out for 15. Um, whatever you said or the leadership said clearly had an effect because you've been in ripping nick, uh, did not straight away, but from the game after the game after. How do you turn something like that around and, and get to where you are now? Yeah, look, I think as crazy as it was and um, with all the talk around us now being world record holders, I think we took it and, and um, discussed it in a really good way. It was mm. just a loss at the end of the day. Um, there's no need to try and look into it and find answers and, and find things that may be wrong. Collapses in cricket happen all the time. Um, you know, there's been situations where teams are none for 100 chasing 120 and all out 110. Um, it just doesn't look as bad as all out 15. Um, so, you know, in cricket, collapses can happen. And, and all we sort of spoke about, it was just a loss. This doesn't define us in, in any way. Uh, and we can go on into the next game. We, we nearly pulled off a great win against the Renegades next game, which would have been 
a huge bounce back story, but I think it put us in a really good place. Yeah. The way the guys have responded um, from that is, is just sort of take it in the stride. We've, we've joked about it a little bit almost and, and said, you know what, it's, in the scheme of things, it's not really a big issue. We get to wake up tomorrow and, and have another opportunity to play the game we love. Um, and I think that was really important. If you try and search for answers and search for why and how and whatever, then you can start finding things that are wrong that, that may not be that wrong. How's Garinda Sandu? The calf complaint, uh, I think it is, from uh, his first over that he bowled, which was the opening over of your uh, total defence. How's he going? Yeah, he's quite sore. Um, he's had those issues in, in the past. So um, he, he's working hard with the, the support staff and the medical staff to try and get back um, in time this tournament because he's been a, a crucial role up front for us and then throughout that middle to death overs as well with the ball. And, mm. and obviously we see he's quite handy at the bat um, after that first game as well. So, um, yeah, we're hopeful, hopeful we'll see him again. And I think he goes to scans today or tomorrow to see the extent of um, what it is. And not long until Dave Warner joins the squad after the Sydney test. Uh, that would be incredibly exciting, I'd imagine, for the squad. And what about the firepower at the top of the order for you when he comes in? Yeah, exactly. And he's in great form as well. He brings a tremendous amount of experience and uh, to have another danger man and come in almost exactly the perfect time when Alex Hales departs, he yeah. comes in. So it's, a, it's, it's really good timing for us. And to join someone in, in good form at the moment in Matty Jilks, it'll be great for him and, and the rest of the batters and um, the whole squad and, and me as well in particular and captain in this team and, and leaning on him for his expertise because he's led teams around the world successfully at the highest level. So... I think it's going to be a great inclusion for us, as are all the Australian players entering that big bash uh, at that time. I think it's fantastic for the tournament to see, and I hope to see more of it in, in the future, to be honest. If if they can move that Sydney test to prior to Christmas and then pretty much from New Year onwards have a, a clear window for all Australian players to play a big bash and finals, I think it'd be fantastic for our game. Chris Green, you're a star of the competition. I was rapt to see you get your opportunity at Shield level as well, and you seize that with both hands and 12 wickets in, in two Shield games. It shows uh, what they've been missing. It was great to see you take that opportunity and run with it, mate. I was rapt for you. Good luck for the rest uh, of the year. You You've so got much. no no drama at all. You've got all, you're have got you in Albury um, to take on the Hurricanes. All the best with that, and we'll speak to you soon. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your patience, and uh, thanks for your wishes. We can't wait to, to get down to Albury. It's going to be a big clash against Hurricanes, so we'll keep having fun and entertaining everyone around the country, hopefully. A lot happening. The summer of tennis has started in earnest, and not without controversy, as it seems to just about every year now, but there's no one better place to take us through it and give us the ins and outs, the who, what, where, why, and how. Brett Phillips, our very own tennis expert and host of the first serve for Bundaberg Ginger Beer, the great Australian brew. BP, hello. Hello, Sam. Well, let's start with this. Um, the United Cup, when we had you on the other night, when we were doing, uh, I was doing Sports Day with Bryce McGain, uh, people obviously responding as to you as they often do with love and admiration. But the question did come through, what the bloody hell is the United Cup? People wanted to know, BP. Yeah, well, uh, for everyone at home, uh, just uh, close your eyes. Let's paint a little picture here. But uh, <laughs> We had the Hopman Cup for 30 years. Uh, people in Perth are still... I can tell you, in a state of mourning that the Hopman Cup, uh, Sam, doesn't exist. Uh, founded by Paul McNamee, 30 successful years in Perth across two venues. And then that was replaced by the ATP Cup, which we know came in. And the first year was a resounding success. Great crowds, that soccer-type you know, feel inside a tennis stadium, country v. country. 
but it was just for the men. Based on singles rankings, they picked, obviously, I think it was 16 to 18 nations. The thought process was, well, because because of the success of the first year of the ATP Cup, we want to get the women involved. That's when the ATP and the WTA were talking about, you know, trying to merge and become closer affiliated, uh, maybe as one entity, which, you know, still might take some years to achieve. And then COVID obviously put a halt. The last two years of the ATP Cup were abbreviated versions, not the same vibe and atmosphere. But now life is back to normal. Um, we wanted to get the women involved, uh, we being the governing body. So that was where the United Cup was created to basically, uh, you know, very similar to the Hopman Cup in a sense of having a team of a mixture of male and female players based on uh, your ranking. Uh, so uh, the, the top-ranked singles player would then determine the team around. So, for example, there are some really strong teams in the United Cup, but there are those, for example, uh, Greece, who obviously have Sitsi uh, Pass and Sakari, but not much underneath. So those players are getting uh, onto a bigger stage than they ever would. They're normally playing in front of two cats and a dog all around the world uh, with no one watching. So, yeah, it's 18 nations. We're back, obviously, with you know tennis in Perth and Brisbane, who have missed out, Sam, the last two years, which mm. has been great for them. Uh, we're in Sydney, and that's where Australia played last night, unfortunately losing their two matches um, with Alex Demonor and Zoe Hive. So, yeah, I think this event will be here to stay now because this is all about bringing the men and the women together to start the year. And the only thing I would say, though, for people in Brisbane or anywhere that Australia isn't based... Unlike the old tournaments that used to exist, Brisbane, Sydney, etc., cetera, uh, they're not getting to see any of the Aussies. So that's the only disadvantage, really. When it comes to the Aussies, uh, the drama's all been... And surprise, surprise, oh, who would have thought that the drama was in and around Nick Kyrgios pulling out just minutes before his press conference to speak about playing in the United Cup. Demonor's promoted uh, up the order and uh, they have to try and answer questions about a situation they don't know anything about. It, it's an ankle injury, apparently. Kyrgios laughing off the condemnation of uh, the late withdrawal. Leighton Hewitt's come out and said, geez, a bit of notice would have been great and maybe just communicate in future. And um, Nick's responding with, well, I'm focusing on the Australian Open and anyone who knows about Grand Slam knows that that's priority. BP, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would have thought Leighton Hewitt would know a little bit about Grand Slam preparation given he's won two of them. Yeah, well, this is a yeah fair, fair point. This is a fair. This is an interesting little situation here. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of nothing new. Uh, of uh, it's not exactly a, a war of words between Nick and Leighton, but this has sort of been an on and off uh, connection, if you like. I mean, you know, I get told that yeah, everything's uh, hunky dory, everything's fine. Uh, this is the this is the dilemma for Leighton Hewitt now. Uh, Leighton bled for the country, obviously. So yeah. he put team competition right at the forefront of anything he's achieved, I think. I mean, winning the two majors was great, but playing Davis Cup for his country and having the best singles record of all time for Australia is something that he hangs his hat on. So he struggles to get his head around anyone that probably doesn't want to play for Australia. Nick's had a three-year absence, doesn't play the Davis Cup. They wanted him to play. Uh, if he if he wasn't Australia's best player, I think it would be a more simple decision because Leighton would just say, well, if you don't want to play, I don't want you. Mm. But this is the dilemma. They want to win the Davis Cup. They realise they can't do it without Kyrgios. So he opts not to play. He goes to the Middle East and plays an exhibition where he pockets a nice sum of money, rolls the ankle. So from what Nick's telling us, he actually informed the tournament director and Craig Tiley on his return to Australia, that he, was, he wasn't he was feeling that great. He uh, trained a couple of times 
in Sydney, but there was no clear indication up until when I spoke to you earlier in the week that he was going to pull out. Um, Leighton Hewitt apparently was caught uh, in a sandstorm in uh, the Bahamas somewhere and no communication. So there's sort of some mixed messaging going on. Uh, but, yeah, the lack of communication from the Kyrgios side is evident. It's probably not a great surprise. I mean, he goes to the beat of his own drum. Uh, mm. Sam doesn't always buy into the team concept, although he sometimes does and he sometimes doesn't. So yeah. it probably just typifies uh, Nick's story of uh, a lot of contradictions from time to time that we, you know, we, we, we can't quite get our head around and understanding his thought yeah. process. So he's uh, he's not playing, which is a real blow, yeah, no doubt for Australia, which we yeah. suffered last night. I think it is too, and and sometimes I think he revels in um, that rebellion, um, and and other times I think when he talks about the lack of support he gets, I think he genuinely does want the crowd to be with him when when they were in the doubles run with Thanasi during the, the last Australian Open. I think he genuinely enjoyed that, and 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 thrived in having the backing. Uh, of the crowd and, and of the people. But you sometimes feel like it's a step forward and a couple of steps back. And uh, I think that even the, the, the staunchest of uh, Nick Kyrgios' critic, if he put his hand up to represent his country and yep. then did so well, and again, because Rafter and Hewitt and, you know, even Philippoussis at times, they sacrificed a lot of money to make sure that they represented their country uh, on the men's side. And so too have a lot of our women done the same thing. I think that would go a long way with that relationship that, is is so up and down with the Australian sporting public. Yeah, I think our association with the Davis Cup, we, we, we put more emphasis on representing your country. That doesn't necessarily apply everywhere around the world. And mm. uh, Davis Cup means uh, different things to different countries. And, and the tennis world has expanded so much in the last, you know, 20 years. But, yeah, look, there's always complexities around Nick in that uh, it, probably, it probably goes for all the great superstars in sport doesn't sound there's just the intrigue of actually who they are the messaging they're saying we get a bit confused because they say one thing then they say the other their actions don't quite match their words at times and we're sort of uh, left um with a bit of mystery as to who you know the real person is but look do we want him to do well at the australian open obviously Mm. Uh, we want him to have the best run he possibly can so right here and now if that ankle is giving him some trouble um, you want him to be right because that's the big uh, cherry in a couple of weeks' time. If there's more to it, then we probably will never know the complete answer until uh, you know a book's put out in about 10 years. Brett Phillips is with us, SEN tennis expert, host of the first serve. BP, a couple of the, the, the biggest names that the sport has ever seen um, are going to be right at the forefront of uh, people's attention for this World Cup. We'll, we'll start with Novak before we get to Rafa. Um, we all know what happened last uh, Australian Open with Novak Djokovic, but he's back in the country. He's been given the green light uh, to play. He spoke yesterday for the first time since being back. What are you anticipating uh, will be the reception that, that he gets when he takes to centre court or whatever court they put him on for his first uh, match? I and mean, even before that, when he's playing the warm-up events. Yeah. Well, that, that's the unknown, isn't it? Um, look, I think... Uh, I think our crowds are generally pretty good. I mean, we, we'd love to see the champions, and we're blessed. I mean, particularly in Melbourne, you know, having uh, you know great sporting events on our on our shores uh, year in year out. So we get to see the best. We want to see the best, and we're normally pretty respectful, generally speaking. I mean, there'll be maybe a pocket who might disapprove, but I think they'll probably be drowned out by the large 
uh, Serbian base that um, you know gets behind uh, Novak Djokovic. Look, he has slipped into Adelaide with obviously little fanfare compared to the hellabaloo from last year. So for anyone listening on SCNSA, I mean, get along to uh, the drive, which has been refurbished right next to the Adelaide Oval, looking superb, I've got to say. Mm. Back-to-back tournaments the next two weeks, and you get to see Djokovic up close. So I don't know, Sammy, maybe put it out to the... Maybe put it out to the listeners what um, their reaction might be. But I think, generally speaking, they they respect him. They've never been in love with him, but they respect what he has achieved in the sport and the athlete that he is and what he puts on the line to be the best that he can be. So, for me, right now, uh, he starts as the favourite in Adelaide this coming week and then, obviously, the Australian Open in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, I get the feeling that it won't be as uh, acrimonious as maybe he's worried that it... Might be. I mean, last year at the forefront of it was the fact that every fan who was being told that you, you can't go unless you are vaccinated was then looking at him, uh, them trying to shoehorn him in uh, under whatever pretenses and not have to have the same rule. And that's what I think people get their back up about. Why are you treated yeah. differently to me? And I'm, you know, a citizen here. And, and all. I think now that he's allowed and everything's ticked off, I, I don't think people will have as big a problem with it and are happy to move on from it. But we'll wait and see. Um, mm. Rafa. So we believe this is Rafa's last time, and this will probably help Novak because a lot of the attention, and rightly so, will be on saying goodbye to someone who has given um, not just, uh, well, he's given Australian Opens so much uh, and he's given tennis uh, a hell of a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, with Nadal, I mean, we don't we don't officially know. He certainly has dropped a hint this week. Um, and when, when you're ticking... Uh, at the age that he is, um, I mean, you know, you can't look too far ahead. I mean, he's had obviously injury after injury, but somehow has just, you know, picked himself up from those uh, debilitating ab injuries or his foot, which we know has given him a lot of issues and still been able to play unbelievable tennis Mm. into his, you know, mid now turning into his sort of late 30s. I mean, he'll turn, what, 37 in 2023, so this could be potentially uh, the last time, but we just we just don't know. It's going to depend on a lot of things. Obviously, life has changed too, becoming a dad and uh, juggling all of that. He arrives in Australia, um, you know, certainly uh, in in a good frame of mind. He wants to start the season well, which he did beautifully last year. I mean, he didn't put a foot wrong for the first of three months before some injuries came. So, if it is, we just cherish, you know. These great champions uh, on our shores, not knowing whether it will be the last time officially or not. We never knew it with Roger totally and never got to say a proper farewell. Um, I don't think there'll be a farewell red carpet for Nadal because he could, you know, possibly play another year of tennis. So, um, but let, let's just, you know, support him. And um, I mean, there's great love for him, obviously, wherever he goes. And uh, gee, if he could pull off another Australian Open, it'd be. Absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it was Herculean last year, uh, his effort with battling, you know, it looked to be at times that the full body cramp, battling the years, and now he sits atop of the the Grand Slam winners list. And people often point to, you know, the 14 French Opens, but it's, you've got to remember that without the French Opens, he still has eight Grand Slams. So that is equal with Fred Perry, Ken Rosewell, Jimmy Connors, Ivan Lendl, and Andre Agassi. Um, That's extraordinary. And that's more than John Newcomb, John McEnroe, Mats Willander. His record, even without the French Opens, has him as an all-time great. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, once upon a time, you know, go back to when those guys were winning under 10 majors. At the time, you probably thought, gee, this this might never be beaten. Then Pete Sampras wins 14. You think, how on earth is anyone going to get past uh, Pete Sampras? And then these three absolute superstars come along and just break all the records. 
And, um, you know, that, that'll be the question, won't it, when it's all said and done for Djokovic and Nadal is, you know, will someone like a Carlos Alcaraz, you know, maybe overtake them in 15, uh, you know, to 20 years' time? So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we've just been blessed, really. If you follow mm. tennis really closely through all the eras, you know, one era just keeps replacing another and we don't lose uh, the quality. Before we you, before you update us on the state of play for the United Cup, just front page of the Herald Sun, uh, the director of the Australian Open, Craig Tiley, um, has addressed fears that other countries and maybe even another city within Australia will try and poach, uh, will continue to try and poach the Australian Open if the government doesn't invest more in infrastructure. How real is that fear, do you think? And, and where does it sit, the long-term yeah. future of the Australian Open, in your mind? With your ear to the ground, finger on a pulse? Yeah. Oh, I find this a really fascinating story, uh, Sam, because, I mean, the government has spent a truckload on Melbourne Park. They've got to spend more because what I'm being told by uh, the playing group, outside of the two weeks and outside of when basically the Australian Open bumps in, which is normally end of November, start of December, if anyone is driving around the area, they bump in, they bump out and it turns into a ghost town and it's an open um, you know, area for people to walk through, is that the the upkeep of the facility outside of the Australian Open needs to be a lot better. There are players rocking up there when the courts aren't maybe in the best condition, the nets are a bit tardy, leaves all over the court. There's no one sort of maintaining it. So that's something that uh, I think TA will need to address. Uh, But for it to go anywhere else but Melbourne, I I could never see it happening. There is no other facility in Australia that could house the Australian Open. And where's the money going to come from to get it to a Grand Slam uh, facility? And, I mean, there's often been talk, yes, about the Asia-Pacific, China. I mean, that's been a delicate issue with no tennis there for the last two to three years. I can't see it ever uh, leaving Melbourne Park. But the upkeep uh, needs to be maintained, you know, 12 months a year, not just for that little couple of months. Um, And just to state of play in the United Cup, BP, it wasn't Mm. a great start for us uh, against uh, Great Britain. No, we lost the first two matches. So this is best of five across two days. So we... Uh, went down last night, Alex Dimonor. Tough one against Cameron Norrie, who's you know become a very solid uh, top 20 player from GB. He's a tough guy to penetrate past. It is the first match of the season too, so a lot of the players are they're going to have to work into the year. Some come a little more cherry ripe. Uh, Zoe Hives was, uh, yeah, sort of little deer in the headlights last night. But uh, today, Island Tomjanovic uh, up against Harriet Dart should win that on paper. And Jason Kubler, of course, in... For Demonor, who replaces Kyrgios, Kubler replaces Demonor, plays Dan Evans, the feisty Brit, who he beat at Wimbledon uh, in his great run uh, this year. So I think he can certainly win that. Uh, yeah, we've got action going on right across the country. So uh, the United States are taking on the Czech Republic at the moment. The Czechs have just breathed some life into that tie with Petra Kvitova winning the third uh, singles match. And so this will continue right across the next week. Uh, Adelaide starting on uh, Sunday is going to be a terrific, great field uh, for Adelaide on both the men's and uh, the women's side. So, yeah, plenty of great tennis, Sammy, to look forward to over the next couple of weeks leading into the AO. And we look forward to being able to cross to you uh, throughout it all, BP. Thanks for your time today and enjoy what's shaping up to be a gripping and exciting and, as always, slightly controversial summer of tennis. We wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks, BP. Indeed. Just one final thing. Sorry, Sam, yes. I forgot to mention Dominic Team, the former world number three, has just been given a wild card into the Australian Open. So no surprise there. 2020 US Open winner. Had a really tough couple of years with injury, particularly with the wrist. Uh, but yeah, he's just been given a wild card.
That's why you're the best in the business, always with the breaking news uh, and always keeping us up to speed on everything we need to know in the world of tennis. Brett Phillips, SEN tennis expert, host of the first serve. Thanks to Bundaberg Ginger Beer, the great Australian brew, and Snapple. Get to Snapple straight on at snapple.com.au. one 736 I'm interested to get your thoughts. What reception do you think that Novak is going to get this year? Um, just that That's the simple question. We don't have to rehash it and, and should he or shouldn't he and all that kind of stuff. I'm just curious as to know how you think he'll be received. Off the text, um, uh, do you forget that we booed Novak before what happened last year because he's an ordinary bloke? That will definitely um, continue. Um, yeah, people, he has never been fully embraced and people don't warm to him as much as they have Rafa and Roger. So what kind of reception? Will it go, just go back to what it was? Do you think it'll have a bit more intensity behind it? Do you think he'll actually be uh, embraced more than he was? What's your bearing on how Novak will be received and treated during the, the summer of Australian tennis? one three hundred seven three six seven three six. And off the text as we go to the break, this is from Susan. Hi, Sam. Terrific segment with Brett. I call him Mr. Tennis. Hope all Lessie and listeners have a great New Year's Eve and a great 2023. Thank you, Susan. You're a star and appreciate that text on the 40 Winks temper text. Uh, one of the great joys in my time at SEN is any time I've just sat next to one uh, Darren Chuck Berry doing big bash games uh, in the wee small hours doing T20 World Cups from the UAE and any other uh, cricket uh, contest that we've had the pleasure of broadcasting together. But he'd abandoned me this year. Um, he went to Hobart Hurricanes as their strategy coach and, and so he should have because he's one of the great minds in Australian and international cricket all around the world. His services are sought. But any time I say, mate, can I get you on for a chat? He's such a bloody good bloke that he always says yes uh, to my partner in crime. Hello, Chuckleberry Finn. Good afternoon to you, Sammy. And uh, I love that title you've given me. When we win, I'm the strategy coach. When we lose, I'm just a fielding coach, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting given you never really fielded a ball in your career. You were always with the gloves on. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. So let the water wash off. Anyway, look, I'm on the road to Albury. We've got a game up there tomorrow afternoon, Hobart versus uh, Sydney Thunder in Albury of all places, so the long-winding road up the Hume Highway for me today. The big bash tonight, two changes to the test side. I've been listening to you this morning in my drive. Oh, no. Greenberg said, and I, and I agree with him. Um, I wouldn't mind getting your thoughts on uh, the, the, the additions to the test squad. So Agar and Renshaw get added. Um, Green and Stark uh, are the players to come out. Um, what did you make of those selections? Uh, Agar, I thought, was a definite to give them the spin, two spin options. And I said to you last night, being in Sydney last week, the, the centre square is very bare. Uh, so I expect two spinners to play. I thought Renshaw was a surprise in the fact that they've already got Marcus Harris there as a spare top-order batsman. So unless they're going to play funny buggers and rest a couple of batsmen because they've already wrapped up the series, I found Renshaw's selection albeit I think he might be next in line. Uh, Warner's just posted 200, so he's safe. Uh, I don't see where Renshaw fits into the picture. Is that a fair call, Sammy? Unless unless they play an extra batsman and they just go in with two quicks and two spinners and think they can get by with that against South Africa. But it's intrigued me, that one. Yeah, maybe playing down the order, as he has done you know, last Shield season, uh, for Queensland and in 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 uh, big bash cricket as well, whether it be with the Heat um, or, or the Strikers over the last couple of years before he went back to the Heat, so maybe there, there's an option to play him in the middle order, or they might go with Agar 
as we know, um, can make runs at test level, the 98 on debut. But this clearly looks like, Chuck, it's, it's um, an indication of who might be included in the squad to go to India and maybe even to England. And I ironically had Peter Hanscom on earlier, who's the number one run scorer in Shield cricket this year, and he wasn't aware of the changes to the squad. I, um, I, I had to tell him uh, while we were on air, which wasn't awkward at all. Um, but do you feel for him a little bit, given that there was a batting spot up for grabs, being the highest Shield run scorer by a substantial margin with a double ton, 281 to your name, and an average of 81 this year, might have had him first cab? Oh, he, he has every right to feel a little disappointed, but selection calls are always interesting. You know, mm. another left-hander. Renshaw's done well previously in the subcontinent. He's got, you know, a big reach. He's a sweeper of the ball. So I think you might be onto something there that maybe they're looking with one eye to India. Hanscom is renowned to be a good player of spin, and he certainly had a, a reboot to his game because he was in trouble, I thought, 12 months ago. But Pete Hanscom's come good, so... It is an interesting one, and, and I'm intrigued as to, you know, Marcus Harris is also there. What What is going on? I'll, I'll wait for the Sydney 11 to be announced. Renshaw at 26 years of age, too, they might look at, you know, he debuted, I think, as a 21-year-old, has the one century and a couple of half centuries, maybe even three to his name. But maybe they look at him as the long-term fix at the top of the order, given that Kawaja, I think, is around 35, 36, and Dave Warner, yep. uh, we're not sure how long he will continue on for. Yeah, no, that, that is a fair call, and I, I think before the Boxing Day test, Davey Warner was clearly under pressure, and I, I just admired what he did. It was amazing to come out and get 200, uh, and he, he's playing his cards pretty close, but does Davey Warner call time on his test career? And do they know that? I'm only speculating. Mm. And Renshaw's probably next cap off the rank. But that wouldn't surprise me that Warner actually goes out on top of his game rather than getting getting the, the nudge and say on your on your bike. And then he's still got plenty of T20 cricket left him in, in in the IPL and all the various comps around the world. So that wouldn't surprise me at all if Warner pulls up stumps. Uh, Chuck, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but we've seen a lot of uh, testimonies and tributes and commemorations to your great mate, um, Shane Warne, that the stand we know, but the Hurricanes and the Stars um, had some special moments in that clash, which you were there for, and we've seen it at the Boxing Day test uh, as well. And then legend status in the, the Sports Hall of Fame, now the Test Player of the Year award to be named after him. Um, how have you experienced those commemorations? Uh, well... Obviously, you know my friendship, Sammy. You, mm. you were there. You were there alongside me on our our last night together with my great mate, and you were involved in a discussion at the MCG. And sadly, that would be the last time I would see him. And and, and yourself, who you know, I know you admire him enormously. He's getting what he deserves. I just, I must admit, mate. I, and I said this to you last night. I still find it very difficult and so raw to be speaking about my friend in past tense. Mm. Every time I go to the MCG to commentate for SEN, I look up and there's the Shane Warne stand, which was always going to happen. Sadly, in his death, it's, it's been renamed the Shane Warne stand. And I still, mate, we're nine months on and I expect my phone to ring every day. So it's, uh, people say it gets easier. I don't know whether it does, to be honest. And yeah, there's no other words for me to say, but, you know, he's get what, what he deserves, but I miss him enormously because we were great mates since we were 18 years of age and 
He was the most loyal friend to me, Sam. He made me believe that I was the best wicketkeeper in the world, and I wasn't. But he made me believe that, and my career coincided with him. So, you know, I'm forever grateful that, that I got to play with him, the greatest. And apart from his cricket achievement, Sam, and, and you're sorry you've touched a nerve, I, I'm, I've lost a great friend, and, and anyone who's lost anyone close, it's bloody hard. Beautiful words, mate, and I appreciate you being so open and, and generous with what is a deeply personal um, situation. So uh, thank you, um, and, and I appreciate you, and, and I'm always, as you know, here for you. Um, your role with the Hurricanes, how have you found yep. it so far? I know it's hard to transition back into cricket. Um, how have you found it? How are you enjoying it? And where do you see the Hurricanes at at the minute? I, I really enjoyed it. Ricky Ponting uh, and I spoke months ago about the opportunity and, and Jeff Vaughan is the head coach down there and he was actually my assistant coach when I was in South Australia so there's some good synergy uh, and James Hopes is also part of the coaching team so we've got three different personalities or pieces of the jigsaw I've really enjoyed it to be perfectly honest Hobart we, we haven't hit our straps at all yet uh, I think we've got a good squad I really do but we've won two and we've lost two so we're sort of just in the middle of the pack, but I think there's plenty of upside to come. Um, Zach Crawley, the England opening batsman, joins us next week, and he'll he'll certainly play a significant role. Uh, and Shadab Khan, the Pakistan all-rounder, he goes back to play for Pakistan for three one-dayers. He'll rejoin us for the back end of the tournament. Uh, I think we've got really good options. Tim David, as you know, is he hasn't really... He's probably helped us win one game so far, yep. but there's upside there. McDermott, Darcy Short. Uh, I'm quietly confident, uh, but you never know in this big bash tournament. You know, with the heat last night and the Melbourne Stars have probably fallen behind the pace a little bit. And, you know, we need to win tomorrow in Albury against the Thunder to make sure we're right in that, that top half. Well, they couldn't be better served with yourself as part of the, the coaching and the, the, the strategy ranks, my friend. Um, it was great to spend the night with you. Again, last night, doing the Big Bash. Looking forward to doing it again as soon as we can and looking forward to seeing the Hurricanes climb up the, the BBL ladder. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for, for your openness and for your honesty. Love your work and we'll speak to you soon. No problems, partner. Happy New Year to you and all the SEN people and in particular all our listeners. Have a safe and happy New Year. Think of me driving up the Hume. Well, drive safely, please. And if you've got any traffic reports, we'd love to hear them. Uh, Darren Chuck Berry. Um, uh, love him. Uh, thanks to Snaffle. Get your Snaffle strut on at snaffle.com.au. And for Lauren X Cleaning, Google Lauren X Cleaning today. We'll